Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello and welcome to the Horn One Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, consider signing up for the Patreon. There you get ad-free content, early access, exclusive episodes, and monthly supporter hangouts. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. If you don't like the subscription-based models, there are other ways of supporting the show that are linked in the description. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart? Available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Welcome to the One on One Podcast with your host. Juan Ayala. We've spared no expense in our search for new testing areas. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, fellow homunculuses and homunculuses or homunculi and homunculi. Hello, welcome to another to the to the Juan on Juan experience. I got a very special show today lined up. Two of my favorite people to podcast with. We have the famous Slick Dissident and Mario Garza from Symbolic Studies. Make sure to follow the show on all social media platforms. TJOJP.com is the website. Check out the Ko-Fi store. Check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash the one one podcast. All that good stuff. If you're on YouTube, if you're on Rumble, wherever you are, like, comment, subscribe, share the show, leave a five-star review, etc. etc. Let's get to it. The, the reason that we're here is because I recently got a new tarot deck, which 
they're not sponsors of the show, but it's a Cthulhu tarot deck. And I wanted to do a breakdown. And today we're going to probably be developing new ideas. We're going to revisit old ones. We're going to talk about Kenneth Grant, obviously. We're going to talk about the Typhonian OTO. We're going to talk about Crowley. We're going to talk about the Cthulhu Mythos. We're going to talk about it all. There's plenty of stuff that we're going to get into. So without further ado, who am I joined by? It's Mario, let's plug your stuff, bro. Unmute yourself, brother. Yeah, no, it, it's actually my internet connection. I, I got to learn. I have to unmute a few seconds before I start talking. <laughs> so um, thanks for having me, man. Symbolicstudies.com is where you can find all of my links. And uh, I'm available for tarot readings, design work, uh, consultations, all sorts of stuff. Uh, go to my YouTube, Symbolic Studies. Right on. And who's this beautiful man? My my nipples are, are ready. They're ripe for the picking. Slick dissident here. What's up, dude? Yo, brother. Sun's out, guns out, right? Yeah, what's up, man? Plug your stuff for the people where they can find you, the, the famous Slick Dissident. I shout you guys out at least, like, once every two episodes. <laughs> Bro, you dropped, yeah, man, you dropped my name on uh, Sam Tripoli. That was beautiful. That oh. was so beautiful. Dropping some of the uh, the old Slick Sophrenic graphics. I'm sure that was, <laughs> that was well received, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah what sure, do they say? How's it go, uh... Imitation is the highest form of compliment, something along those lines. Something like that. So, uh, yeah, Slick Dissident is my uh, YouTube channel. I've been on hiatus pretty much all summer, coming back, uh, you know, trying to get my uh, get my etiquette figured back out. You know, I figured I'd come back nice and raw, but naked, dwarfed out of the cosmic womb of consciousness just after that, uh, you know, subconscious sub-ritual and the three days in the underworld there. So here I am, and uh, you know, I figured I'd share my personal trauma scars. You know, I got a, I got one nipple that was pierced for like thirteen years, maybe fourteen years. That nipple right there. Nice. <laughs> Looks as good as ever, bro. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, uh, it was ugly. It had to go. Where can people find you, Slick? Slick, Slick does it on YouTube, right? I'll, I'll post all the links. Oh yeah. There's that. There's also um. I'm also with uh, uh, Chance Garten on uh, Rockfin. Uh, you catch me on the Rising from the Ashes crew. I've done a lot of work with the spiders. And I want to maybe mention while we're on, like, the fact that we are picking up a lot of breadcrumbs we dropped years ago, you know, that work we've done with H.P. Lovecraft and the Cthulhu thing. People might want to take a minute, if you haven't, and kind of go back to the last time these heads came together and we put together some really crazy connections between, like, New Orleans uh, and Crowley raising a Tutulu spirit during a ceremony that Kenneth Grant confirms, like all the details of, and all the things about the spirit that Crowley was bringing, uh, uh, becomes fictionalized 18 years later, a moon card later, uh, in H.P. Lovecraft's story of Cthulhu, which is like a one to one overlay. And Kenneth Grant has talked about how it's a, a hand and glove fit, the fact that uh, Crowley did it in reality, and then, um, and then H.P. Lovecraft came and did, did it in fiction, so it's immortalized in the public. So it went from the private to the public. Now, I want to point out real quick, everybody knows Ocasio-Cortez. Her predecessor's name was Crowley. In her district, which is like, I just learned this, in Hunt, New York, uh, Ocasio-Cortez's district, her predecessor's name was Crowley. And here, her initials spell chaos. 
So in the wake of Crowley, the, the guy who was in Acasio's position before, chaos ensues. I just thought of that today. Uh, and I just think it's appropriate that it dawned on me today as here we are tracking this beast. We're tracking this monster across the landscape of history. Uh, so people should go back if you haven't seen our H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, Cthulhu, Crowley, New Orleans plus Providence project. Right on. I did not know this. So yeah, Joseph or Joe Crowley or Crowley, however you like to say it. And he kind of looks like Crowley. I mean, look at him here in this picture. He kind of looks like him, dude. That's weird. Yeah, and Ocasio-Cortez is, her name is Chaos, right? K-C-A-O. Mm -hmm. Like A-O-C is C-A-O, Order Ab Kao. Her name also, it, it presages the J-6 event. That was a burning of Alexandria. January 6th was a burning of a tower. It was the burning of Alexandria event. And so her whole bio is encapsulated in her name. Her name is like a hypersigil of what she is uh, predestined to execute. And so she is the burn, the chaos of the burning of Alexandria, which happened in J6 and came through. And, and her whole suicide squad, the squad that is, came along with her, I'm speaking both in fiction and reality when I say this, her suicide squad, some of them have names that are attached historically to the Tower of or the, uh, the Alexandria. Uh, the burning of Alexandria, one of which is, um, uh, it was, a, a uh, oh, it's the lady that wears the thing on her head. Um, oh, I'm blanking. I'm totally drawing a blank. You are I. Hmm. You lost. Uh, yeah. I should have a computer in front of me more often, <laughs> but uh, anyways, her entire squad have names that are little plugs from history that all build up like building blocks into the story of the burning of Alexandria that happened on January 6th. Yeah, it's a trip and a half. Yeah, but I'm anyways, not, I'm, I'm ranting. I'm not doubting you. I, I believe that there is this this mirroring of this what I, the mob zone of you all right so I, i've been reading i didn't finish it but i was started reading beyond the mob zone by kenneth grant to prepare for this a little bit right to talk about some lovecraftian and the idea of consciousness this this the deep sleep state and all these different things which we're gonna get into because obviously it has to do with hp lovecraft and his visions and I also want to bring up Lamb and ETs and UFOs because that's a really hot topic now, especially, and how everyone's on the boat that it's all just fake and gay, right? I mean, I remember as a kid growing up, aliens were real and UFOs were a real thing, but now that the government is on board, it's all just <laughs> a psyop. And, I, and it's really funny because in this book, Grant talks about how in 1947, the death of Crowley, uh, the modern UFO age was born, okay? And they're taking pretty he's pretty much taking credit for the the right Roswell that happened after on all that. And they're taking credit for the modern so right here, page 21, Crowley dies 1947, beginning of modern UFO age. So mm -hmm. they're taking credit for these things that are bleeding through now. I can get on board with it being a sort of government psyop, government 
conspiracy, whatever. But I have a hard time thinking about what what about all the accounts way before the ninth right the twentieth century, the nineteenth century, the eighteenth century. All you know the accounts before all that. Has it always been a, a government conspiracy and a psyop then? Because I mean there's stories of UFOs that go back thousands and thousands of years. So that's why I can't get 100% behind it, that it is, a, you know, since 1947, the government has been behind it. Okay, maybe something is up, and it's not always what it seems, right? That they're, what, how you were mentioning, Slick, it goes from the esoteric to the exoteric, and there's a loss of translation when, when that transmutation happens, right? Obviously, because it's going from, from these secret societies, shady people type out to the public. So something is bound to change, but... Yeah, I want to talk about that because he talks in this about Lamb being a sort of spaceship and space vessel. So I want to I want to mm. really dive deep today. And like I said, of course, my neighbor's motorcycle, bro, is so loud for no reason. <laughs> it's not even a Harley. So real quick, was has it been years that we covered Parsons and and H.P. Lovecraft and all that? Because I know we I was surprised. It, a while. it was a while ago. Let me check here which episode. I don't think it's been multiple years, though. So I covered H.P. Lovecraft a year ago on mine. Then Mm -hmm. we did, yeah, we did it a year ago. H.P. Lovecraft and his pal Cthulhu with Slick Dissident, Mario Garza, one-on-one, and Kaylee B. We we did one episode then. And I know we did another one with Parsons as well. So interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's been about a year or so. And like I said, today we're going to be flipping through. I scanned up the tarot deck. And we're going to be flipping through that art. I have all the stories pulled up as well. So there, there's plenty of material. But you, did you want to add something, Mario? Uh, you know what? Um, I'll get to it when we get to my slides. But uh, regarding the alien thing, you're, you're totally right, dude. Um, part of this whole entire agenda right now is is the compartmentalization of everything, and uh, including compartmentalization of time and making you think that this phenomenon has only been you know, within this certain time frame or whatever. So I have a lot of thoughts with that but just saying that you're spot on with everything i feel you dude and and that's the thing about the the community if you want to even call it that because there's going to be the people who believe it the people who don't believe it and then the people who are just in between right where where they're in this this zone where it, it might be real and why it might be not and and i mean it doesn't matter but yeah i do feel like it's been kind of just put out there and it's being disregarded and i go okay but what about way before the government were they doing it right when john dean or kelly were communicating with things on the other side was that the government was that a conspiracy as well like who knows right so i don't even know where to begin but let's go ahead and pull up here the reason that we're even here in the first place this tarot deck and i want to get your guy let's flip through it really quick and then we'll go ahead and break down and and whatever comes up comes up but i wanted to get your guys' opinion the art is pretty sick and i did a quick I did a quick scan of it, right, on the printer, PNG. So we have here the Major Arcana. We have... Now, I'll pull up the the stories here in a little bit, but each one of these characters is part of a different Cthulhu story, or H.P. Lovecraft story. So we have here the Fool, which is from the... And some of these I've read, some of these I have not. The Dunwich Whore, this is Wilbury uh, Waitley, I guess is how you say it. And it kind of reminds me of, what's that guy that you always talk about, Slick, where he is, his legs are deformed? 
and he is Aruga. Ariga. Ariga, the charioteer. So, the more I study, appears to be more and more important to the elites. Uh, like increasingly more important. Interesting. Well, this guy here in particular is half man, half demon, or elder god, or something. We'll we'll get to it. We have the magician, which is Nyarlathep which is like this mercurial being, like messenger of the gods type of thing. We have here, we have Nitocris from Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, which this is a really interesting story because this is the one with Houdini and the similar persona or ego that him and H.P. Lovecraft were in, were encountering in their dreams. So we have Abdul Al-Hazred. What? Is, it, uh, is he in the hangman card? So here, well, well so we have... The Hierophant, we have Cthulhu. The Empress is Casilda from the King in Yellow. Mm. We have Haster from the King in Yellow as well. Right, so the art is is pretty cool. I, I like, again, I've always been a horror fan. So anything monster related, anything, again, Dungeons and Dragons, right? Play Dungeons and Dragons, Magic the Gathering. Because a lot of people go, oh, you focus too much on the dark stuff. I go, well, that's the cool stuff to me, so... If you don't like it, turn it off. But. Oh, yeah. So we have. Dude, I, I, I want to say about the art. I love it a lot. Uh, but, dude, they're all sitting inside of eggs. Yeah, which we'll get to. <laughs> <laughs> the egg of manifestation. So we have here the deep ones from the from the shadow over Innsmouth. We have, look at the charioteer card. It is the black goat from the last test. We have Mother right, Hydra. That's, that's a really interesting choice. For right. a few different reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Auriga, right? Uh, he's usually depicted with uh, goats, right, Slick? The charioteer? You are correct. Yep, he's got two goats by his kidneys and a big mama goat on his, over his shoulder. So it almost looks like he has two heads, but it's just a, a, a mama goat he's carrying who's Capia, important star. Interesting. That's right, yeah, exactly. The other reason why that's an interesting choice, too, is because the chariot card corresponds with cancer, Opposite Cancer is Capricorn, the sea goat, the sea goat. So its upper half is goat-like. Its lower half is oceanic in nature. It's more like a fish or something. And here you have the upper half of a goat, and then obviously its lower half is completely different and wild and mystical and everything else. So that's kind of just uh, an interesting choice there. Interesting. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And again, we'll break down all these stories because I have them all pulled up. And here again, there's plenty to talk about. We're going to be all over the place here today. This is a, a free think tank session, right? The, the boys and I are getting together and, and just really coming up with whatever, whatever comes up. So we have here Abdul Ahazred from the Necronomicon, right? The author of the Necronomicon here. This is a depiction of him. And then he's the hermit. We have the Wheel of Fortune, the Night Gaunts. From the dream quest of the unknown Kadath, which, right, the night gaunts were kind of sort of these, I think they were visiting Lovecraft at one point, right? These entities that were visiting him in his dreams. So we have that aspect of it. Then we have the mother of Waitley, Laviania Waitley from the Dunwich Horror. Again, this is very weird because her husband, and I, I haven't read some of these, but from what I saw, the husband summoned this entity to impregnate her. And we have this weird demon child thing. Again, we'll we'll break all these down, but really interesting. I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Really weird. We you have... know, 
there's a theory out there that the more languages you speak, uh, that the other languages become like personalities in the, even a healthy mind. This is like, it's not like, this is not, this is the example of healthy multilingual people and that their other languages become a persona. And what that means in a way is that when we hear these really weird fucking words, we've never heard in these combinations of sounds in a weird way, it does open portals and it does seed our consciousness for all kinds of cool, fun ideas. Uh, but you know, for some people got some skeletons in their closet, you know, they might have some funky dreams because they heard the word Allah, Allah, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely got, got some hummunks in the closet, right? <laughs> got some junk in the trunk. So we have here the temperance. Uh, we have the hangman card, which is a really interesting one. Yig from the curse of Yig. So it's the serpent, the serpent being right. Holding this dude upside down. Hangman style. Then the death card is just death. <laughs> they didn't they didn't pick anything in specific. It's just death. We have here this guy, which I don't know how to say his name, but the the, the lurker at the threshold. It's some really weird. Again, how you're saying the, this these according to the Cthulhu mythos, these aren't even the correct names for these beings. Okay, because you can't even speak their names into existence because it would just bring destruction or whatever it is that he, that they've talked about so we have this this other entity we have my go or, or migo this guy right here which i found interesting right the migos didn't one of them pass mm. away recently it was like i think one I think of, so right from the migos group so we have here and then is he got some brains in a vat but that's the wish from the whisper in the darkness and that's the devil <laughs> card which is mm. interesting this entity yeah. we have the Dagon, the tower card, which we'll get into from the Dagon story, which is a really interesting one. We have the star, which is the elder thing from the at the mountains of madness. One of my favorite stories, because uh, right, I'm a fan of the thing and the the movies, right? The the original one, the one that they made after that, and then the, one of the latest ones. We have the moon, which is the cats of. Ulthar, which I've never read, but apparently it's got to do with some cats, which, right, T. Gandhi is your lord and savior. That's what I thought about at first, but you have the moon card there. You have Yog Sothoth, the case of Charles Dexter Ward as the sun card. And then we have Judgment here, which is a cultist using some sort of grimoire. I think that's the Necronomicon, if I'm not mistaken. And then the last card, Azathoth, the dream quest of the unknown Kadath. So, and then I went ahead and I did the other cards, but I just put the first, right? The first, I don't know what the name of this is, Mario. You can correct me because I'm not 100. percent Yeah, you're thinking of uh, like the Ace cards. Yeah, so this is the Ace cards, and then obviously the other ones are just more wands stacked on top of each other, and then we have the the other depictions of the the King of Wands and the Queen. Mm. So just more. More symbolism there. We have the pentacles here. Got some cultists. Really. What was, uh, can you can you go back up to the uh, right there? Is that a high priestess? Is that the high priestess card? It, what do they call that? The queen of wands. Okay, got it, got it. That makes sense. Yeah, these are all. Again, I didn't scan all ten of them, or, or however many there are, but I just scanned the first. Yeah, one. these are the court cards. Yeah, the court cards with there. the ace. Yeah. You know, it would almost be a fun game. Like if we were uh, all hanging out, 
to try to guess what the cards are. Like everybody takes turns writing down their guesses, you know, like everybody sits mm-hmm. in their corner with their, with their notebook and you flash the card, but not the word. Mm-hmm. And everybody has to guess which character out of a 78 you're looking at. That would be fun to play. These and are- we all sh- you have to do a shot of absinthe for everyone you get. <laughs> these are pretty right? dope right here. Look at these. Yeah, I like the cup cards. Interesting. We got the swords. And for those oh, listening sweet. on the audio, check out the video version. I'm flashing these up on the screen, and then we'll just get into it. So, yeah, this is this, again, not a sponsor of the show. If they want to sponsor the show, they, they can reach out and and hit me up but yeah i found it very interesting again being a lovecraft fan and reading his stuff again one cosmicism one of the fathers of horror right Uh, very inspirational to a lot of people and then very inspirational to you have occultists because things that are make-believe there's something about incorporating real life things in stories so you, you mix the right you transmute fiction with reality together you start mixing it together it has a very powerful effect and for some people they're like oh that's just make believe it's just a story but for these occultists right they're like no 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 this is we're gonna go ahead and and have these as some deities that we're gonna worship and you have grant talking about how the more sensitive types were affected I'm looking for the for the passage here where he talks about how the more sensitive people like the artist types were affected during this time because of the the weapons that they were testing and how it, it, it ripped a rift in space and time <laughs> mm. the testing of the nuclear weapons and all that stuff and again it opened up right so right here uh Upon the intrusion from the outside, there was an, occurred a marked increase in nervous and psychological disorders and heightening of dream activity among sensitives, artists, metaphysicians, even scientists. Certain dreams had already inspired writers such as H.P. Lovecraft with prophecies concerning aeons and time cycles, which they considered mere fantasies. But their dreams brought into focus a reality more vivid than the mundane reality to which humanity is normally subjected. More vivid in that they concentrated in a simultaneous apprehension of past present and future a single moment outside time and space as conceived by man and so we have here the lovecraft was one of the first to trace consistently the vectors of this aeonless reality as freighter arcade had been the first to quantify its magical geometries and to apply its metaphysician meta mathematics to the tree of life crowley had derided a a chod a cod for turning upside down the serpent of wisdom, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Cause he, th- that's the thing about grant. You gotta, it, you can speed read through it, but if you speed read, he's going to drop some stuff that you're going to miss. So you got to be constantly going back and picking it up because it, there's just a lot to absorb. And like I said, I didn't finish it, but yeah, go ahead. Slick. Well, Ken- Kenneth G is a anagram for think basically. Uh, and also uh, for the whole name, Kenneth, think <laughs> a phonetic anagram. It's not perfect. It's flawed. Uh, and his entire name has the word any G R M, any G R M. 
basically has the word Enneagram in his name. The remaining letters are T, T, H, Thoth, which is kind of pointing at my work. I've taken the Thoth deck and put it on the Enneagram. That's kind of fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, oh, I forget what else I was going to say. Uh, go ahead. So I have here this magical. So let me go back. The this magical revival of current infinitely older than that which informed the aeons of Isis, Osiris, and Horus had its reflex in the scientific and political revolution that erupted around 1945 with the first atomic explosion. As previously stated in the outside the circles of time, which I haven't read that one, it was this explosion in the tests leading up to it that ruptured the subtle membrane of the Earth's magnetic atmosphere. There occurred a massing of the shade, and two years later, there swarmed through the resulting rent the forces alluded to as UFOs, LGMs, ETs, etc., for which, after more than 40 years, no adequate explanation has been proposed by scientists or by the governments of this planet. So he's alluding to, right, that they are responsible for these ETs. But like I said, now, let's let's say that it was, because I believe that modern day technology is magic right like this technology that we're experiencing today is we would be burned at the stake for doing what we're doing right now which is talking over massive distances right the three of us on different parts of the country talking together we'd be burned at the stake right now we'd be practicing witchcraft necromancy whatever you want to call it yeah man we're basically uh, practicing the flight of the witches right now. Yeah. We're at the <laughs> we're, uh, Sabbath right now. We're all just like in this astral plane together. Which We're, we're up on Mount Brocken casting the Brocken Spectre to one another. <laughs> and it all makes sense to us and only us. And, and that's funny you say that, right? Because if, if I did that video on Crowley at CERN, right? You, you mentioned Joseph Crowley, Crowley at CERN, which... If you look at this technology, it's almost like a continuation of what they were trying to achieve without the technology. And it's very interesting because at CERN, right, that's the typical, the right, the the top of the iceberg when it comes to conspiracies, the Mandela effect and, and opening up portals at CERN. But if you look at, from my experience of studying the occult, the magnet, which there's a large array of magnets at CERN, is the stone of choice for magicians, which I find that very interesting because at CERN they have, again, a mixture of different magnets together. And I did that video, which traces back, right, Crowley all the way back, right, the symbolism with the one of the top guys at, at CERN that's connected to the touchscreen computer, which is a sort of scrying mirror, which is connected to the Visconti family that put forth the first ever oldest tarot deck. And not only that, but they, and that's why we're here again with the tarot and all that stuff. And they also immortalized themselves within that tarot deck. The original, they print, they painted the family in the tarot deck, which is really interesting. Do you have anything on that, Mario? You know, basically you can tell. It's really interesting. Some of these older decks, you can tell that they're actually referencing actual people family members um kings and people of influence and things like that so the two like oldest decks out there there's three decks that you really can't tell in my opinion 
I don't know if we know exactly which one was the oldest. It's what you just mentioned, Visconti. There's also the Solabusca. And then there's an old version of the Marseille. And I think that they're all kind of right there where it gets really, really blurry, like what their true origins are exactly when they came out, things like that. But in the Solabusca, it was part of their tradition, actually. It was part of the uh, commission because it was another wealthy family that commissioned this deck was to put actual historical figures in there. And you could just tell that the likeness is very similar um, to real people. So I'm not surprised with the Visconti. I don't know if I've ever heard that before. Um, but I have a lot of... You, you want me sure, to pull you up your, your slides? It's going to take a minute whenever we get into it. So whenever you feel it's appropriate. But, dude, there is so much excellent information in there. It, it's blowing yeah. my mind. I, I just want to kind of uh, contrast this entire thing we're doing about, like, who controls the images from the source in the beginning? Who is Who seeded this concept? Who started this egregore? It's very similar to the idea that Machiavelli had a great deal to do with choosing uh, Caesar Borgia to be the image of Jesus. And so in the creepiest way, Machiavelli gave us the image that so many people think Jesus looks like. That is so trippy. So that's kind of like what we're doing with these tarot cards. Like the family that, the same family gave us these icons so long ago. Very, icon, very interesting. In, icon in echidna in the medusa that turns you to stone from looking at it <laughs> all, all very similar well so speaking of stone i just wanted to comment real quick because we're going to segue into this information at some point but a magnetic stone is symbolic of the central stone which is the lodestone and i'm going to get into it at some point i'm putting together a presentation and the lodestone is this idea that there's this magnetic mountain, essentially, or stone at the center of everything, which is what magnets or what, excuse me, compasses point to, right? So this is north, basically, right? And so in my opinion, the Philosopher's Stone, and there's several other stones that, um, you know, there's lots of lore around them and mythology and things like that. I think they're all talking about this same stone that exists at kind of the sacred center, which it turns out northern symbolism polar symbolism which you guys know i'm all about is according to kenneth grant under a pen name is what the whole entire lovecraftian mythos is about that he's actually trying to preserve the polar tradition and he says it very clearly multiple multiple times uh in this book called polaria which we're gonna talk about here in a few minutes interesting you son of a gun yeah yeah not you made you really perked my nipples up there the way that you put that mario so Let's pull up here real quick the Visconti tarot deck just to take a look at this real quick and then we'll dive into the other stuff. But this is, again, uh, the Visconti Forza tarot deck and it's one of the oldest. And from from my understanding, again, it's in a collection uh, of different decks of the time that they came together and that's what they refer to as the Visconti. But... Again, the Visconti's the uh, one of the more powerful families in Milan. You have the they use the emblem of the serpent, either eating the man or birthing the man. So I mean, it's it's up for interpretation, really. What what you want, and then is that serpent a serpent or is it a worm? Right, because worm and serpent were the same thing back then, and so we have these here: the the Pope, the Popus, the Empress. The juggler, the pope, temperance, 
the chariot and i think you've showed this tarot deck this tarot card before i'm pretty sure when we did the chariot episode mario i remember seeing this one because it blends into the back there right you have this weird love card with the homunculus there at the top with some or an angel right with the wings interesting cupid like yeah yeah, back from that hand to go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have fortitude with this weird. <laughs> right, it's strength. A, it's a fat ass lion there. We have this thing here, I the wonder, wheel of fortune. Is that club like a supplemental dog dick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's the twelve labors of Hercules. It's his first labor. Interesting. So with the Nemean lion, we have time. So we have this guy with a with a sand mushroom uh, cap, by the way. Mushroom cap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the hermit card. We have the hangman. We have, and again, these are also allegedly members of the Visconti family. Okay, so they're immortalized in this deck. Now, it's interesting because you're bringing up right the stone, the philosopher's stone, the cornerstone, whatever you want to refer to it as. And I've also heard you, because again, I'm a rookie when it comes to tarot, talk about how the tarot deck is actually instructions and maybe perhaps on how to create the Philosopher's Stone or transmute yourself, whatever it is, your spirit, soul, your physical self. I think that because I think alchemy hits all those fronts. It, it, it is that and some, right? So it exactly. is a psychological, spiritual thing. How much is a, a physical transformation? And that, it's funny because Paracelsus said that the alchemist can't, achieve the magnum opus without first going deep within you. You can't love yourself if you can't love your homunculus first, Slick, okay? You got to <laughs> love the homunculus to then love yourself, right? We have the fool here, and we have the queen of cups. And look so at the resemblance, I'm noticing too. that mm-hmm. they're including the original cards, and uh, there's no devil card because no devil card has ever been found from this original collection so that's kind of a mysterious sort of thing people have speculated what happened to the devil card so if you buy a reproduction of this deck the devil card that you receive um, is actually not original and so nobody knows what the original devil looked like wow that's really interesting like the full metal alchemist here (laughs) nice so that that trips uh that trips a trigger for me mario i'm uh, going in really deep on machiavelli and uh, I'm studying Machiavelli through Leo Strauss, which is a dangerous route. All ye who follow in my footsteps be warned. Um, but Leo Strauss said that it was in chapter 15 that Machiavelli really puts a flag out that he's writing in between the lines through his entire uh, opus. And so Leo Strauss went through and read everything through between the lines, but 15 was his cipher number. Uh, so I think oh. that's interesting that that the devil card was missing, right? So it becomes like a linchpin, which it's counter lever to the actual uh, keystone, which is up in Cancer, mm, right? Yes. Sure. It's a it's the opposite keystone. It's like the anti keystone, anti Christos. Mm, mm, yes, indeed. Capricorn uh, ruling the devil card. Interesting. Yeah, I did. I did stumble across that devil, that devil card aspect, but I, I didn't know that. I mean, I couldn't really find anything on it. But yeah, you're actually comparing the Visconti replacement cards. So there you go. Exactly. If you can only one or two before purchasing it from with a replacement tower, devil and knight of coins. 
The Three of Swords mm -hmm. is also replaced, but it's hard to mess that one up, et cetera, et cetera. So again, yeah, they love to they love to signal the fifteen. We've touched on this with the Louisiana purchase, fifteen million dollars. Louisiana is the devil card in my territories work. It's the feet of the homunculus that is the outline in the state. Uh, the entire uh, Louisiana purchase is in the shape of a sphinx facing east. I call it the bell, the bull figure is what I call the shape of that sphinx. Uh, and it is uh, 15, 15 mil lion dollars. And even like Louisiana has the word, uh, uh, let me think, no, it's New Orleans. The word New Orleans has noir, which means dark, lions. It's a dark lion, uh, which is uh, kind of hiding in your subconscious. When you look at a map of the United States, it's right there. It just takes a little bit of imagination. Interesting. Had to be stolen. Or maybe they revealed too much, right? Maybe what if that's the missing piece? That's part of it. People have wondered if it was stolen. And also, too, is it missing because it was revered and used ritualistically, perhaps Ooh. set aside on an altar or something along those lines? Or actually, um, is it missing because people didn't want it part of their deck because it's too sinister or dark or something along those lines? So, And who was who that family member, right? Who was right, the yeah. devil? <laughs> who was that? Unless I mean, he had to be part of the family, right? Or, or maybe not. Who knows, right? So <laughs> interesting, interesting connection. And I guess man. you could you could suss out which family it would be if you had a list. You could do it by you know inductive reasoning. You could just mark off and see who's left off at the end. Uh, but yeah, I like that idea that the uh, the master key. But it also. You know, rule number one of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Rule number one of the Satanic Order is there is no Satan. <laughs> That's right. That's the, the alchemical Fight Club. So we have here W.H. Mueller, Polaria, the gift of the White Stone. Now, the White Stone is also another name for the Philosopher's Stone as well. That's or you have right. that the White Stone is for the silver, the Red Stone is for the gold. So you have various interpretations there. And then you, you brought up the the stone at the, the Rupus Nigra at the North Pole that Mercator had written to John D about it out of all people had written about that. And it had a lure to it. There was a vortex there and all, there was there was mythological creatures there as well. So very interesting. And now we have weren't you and I together when we found out about this pen name? I want to say I think it was yes. with Ani, right? Ani, yeah, he mentioned it, and I was like, holy smokes, dude. Someone else sent me this book title. They said, because of your polar research, you have to read it. What they didn't say, though, was that this is Kenneth Grant under a pen name. So when Ani mentioned that, I'm like, okay, I'm all in. So I actually printed up a copy. You can't find a copy for under, like, $700. And so I got myself a copy, and honestly, it blew my mind. It is one of the most powerful, dense books regarding polar symbolism the northern tradition all of this stuff that i've ever read before and it's really unassuming i mean just look at that cover very very unassuming um, but there is so much killer information and one of the things that i really appreciate about it is if my understanding is correct this would be the last book or one of the last books that kenneth grant ever wrote and so that's really important because you're seeing a culmination of his life's work, right? And so it's a culmination of his life's work. And what is it about? 
polar symbolism, the northern tradition, and how H.B. Lovecraft was essentially, and others, and he drops a lot of nuggets throughout the whole entire thing, which is why I appreciate reading his work anyway. But um, he basically says that H.P. Lovecraft was trying to encode the polar tradition, which he calls to the Order of Yore. And he makes this whole big thing about how um, you need to tap into the polar wisdom in order to really do anything here on a magical sort of level. So here we have this high-level occultist praising Northern symbolism and really, really getting into it and breaking down why and how H.P. Lovecraft was encoding this into his work. And I have a bunch of quotes, and we don't have to go through all of them. But um, I have a ton of highlights in here that I want to share with you guys. So maybe the first, I think there's like 35 slides. Um, If we get maybe through half of them, that would be awesome. But Yeah, man. You know, uh, that that gift of your, uh, I I immediately hear that green speak, you know, that old language, the the language that creates uh, just upon speaking, the abracadabra language from the garden but also mario just last week it was dawning on me how the uh, uh, ursa in all things ur you know there's even the greeks have a, a creation mythology that as a city of ur there's a character in the bible from the city of ur it's one of the first earliest cities but i'm thinking it's kind of got this kind of collectivism thing to it because it's our it's mm. your it's yours and it's ours. It's a thing about sharing. It has something to do with this sharing. And I just wanted to kind of uh, put in even hours, you know, keeping track of time, uh, all tying into the bear. And I know uh, our buddy Luke, Elsie uh, King down in Australia is tripping on everything I just said because he's got so much to lay behind that. But yeah, there's something about the collecting of it. Like it's a cup, it's a vessel, it's a chalice. So I just wanted to kind of put that all out there that the sound means come together. And Right, you're talking about a chalice. Well, you have the idea of the the Merovingians, right? And the what's the the myth? Jeez, the uh, Holy Grail. The Holy Grail that the Holy Grail might be an actual person, right? That or a bloodline or something. And it's funny because Grant talks about the Kalas, right? And the there's a lot of references to bodily fluids. My favorite of them was the moon juice. So I don't know if you've ever drank <laughs> of the moon juice, Slick, but the moon moon juices is going in the title one way or another because we're talking about chalices and stuff goes in those chalices, right? So oh man, who knows? That's great. Uh, so the the poet philosopher uh, Bataille is has been on my radar. He he picked up a. Uh, Nietzsche and he mixed him with Marquis de Sade and he's like creepy way into body fluids. And so whenever I hear bat from now on, I will be thinking of this Bataille fella. He started a secret society. Uh, I forget their name, like Azafel, uh, the headless one. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's like they really bastardized a lot of philosophy mixed with body fluids. But from now on, when I hear bat, I will think of this guy Bataille and it's trippy because what started the what started the outbreak was bat bat sputum caused the world to shut down. Yeah, which could have been, which I think was a nod to Bataille. Honestly, for those who are in those circles, they're like, yeah, we got. You. 
and and recently the lab of horrors in california that they found that had a whole bunch of hamunky junky stuff right i don't i'm not again this stuff is coming on the news but just some homunculus references but <laughs> did you just coin a new word did, it, did you just verb a new word homunky junky bro yeah dude and that's that's the the juananites know the the homun- <laughs> homunculites yeah, i don't know what I, what i'm calling them <laughs> But yeah, so and and really quick, now go ahead, Mario. We got this is page two. I was just gonna say, go for it if you had a thought that you wanted to. No, no, I'm gonna save the lore later because this Wilbur Waitley guy was here. His uh, develop he matures at an abnormal rate, reaching manhood within a decade, and that reminds me of the stormtroopers. I'm sorry, the the clone troopers that Uh they were. Right again, the first the the homunculus that we were all introduced to as I mean for me at least as a young man growing up, those were the OGs and they were <laughs> they were made to age quicker in order to be put into battle. So again, just a weird yeah. coincidence isn't there. It, isn't it so fascinating that in our adult lives we're looking at genetic modification and masks being militarized? Mm-hmm. You know, using masks uh, to terrify. It's so fascinating. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, dude. Uh, just real quick before I get to this, um, Ur, he actually talks about Ur a little bit here in regards to its relationship with Ursa Major and everything else. But Ur, he said, is a, an old name for Earth. And that Earth came from Ur as well. And then, of course, I always think, too, when I think of Ur, brother, mother, father, further. You know, there's so many words that end with the E-R as well. So to me, I kind of, um, I think I've looked into it. Er kind of means original, you know, or primal or the first, something along those lines. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but bear with me here as I read a little bit to you guys. It, it's going to be totally worth it. Uh, but this is just what's on the back of the book, right? Did H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft, America's secret alchemist, possess the keys to man's spiritual liberation? Do his works contain the codes to our to open our understanding of the deeper depths of consciousness? Was the recluse of Providence privy to a universal knowledge and language that has been concealed for centuries? The answer is a resounding yes, according to scholar and alchemist W.H. Mueller, who resides in Germany. Polaria is like a beacon to the mystical pole, the summit of spirituality, drawing substantially on the roots of world mythology and written in rich esoteric language, Polaria reveals the depths of truth, beginning where most books end. Through Polaria, we are shown the keys to the passage out of the limitations of space-time to behold the eyes of the eternal. And then there's a little quote down here by Lon Milo Duquette. And Lon Milo Duquette, he's the grandmaster of the OTO, and he has been for a little while. And it was very interesting. I came across a video of Lon Milo Duquette talking about this book not that long ago, within the last like year or something like that and he was very coy and very tight-lipped about his relationship with this author he gave no information he just said this talented alchemist my publisher asked me if i would write a review or something along those lines or write a forward or something because i think he actually did write the forward um and to me it's just one of these things where when you know it's kenneth grant actually it makes a lot of sense that he would be hush 
about all of that. So he doesn't want people to know that that's the deal. But once you're aware of the author's true identity, it makes a lot of sense because he's been talking about Lovecraft for a long time and he's been talking about Northern symbolism for a long time. Yeah. So Kenneth Grant's a two and a seven in the most uh, ordinal reduced gematria. K11 becomes a two. Grant is the G is a seven, 27. So that's your two uh, dippers, the seven stars in uh you know in the ads tools swinging around the poster and so speaking of dippers i'm gonna bring up those pictures that i had sent you mario remember those those the pictures i had emailed you that one time with the with the worshiping of the dipper and i came across this while doing some studies on the Taoist. so we have here they're worshiping the dipper and then there's another set of images here let me pull it up we have this other one here is another depiction of it riding the chariot in the shape of a dipper so it's got this thing here riding it got a dragon right and then there's one more that was really interesting and it was it was i find it fascinating because right there they would pray that they would be taken up to the dipper right that the, the, again it was like they would pray and this group of beings would come forth and float them up to the dipper. It was, it's really bizarre. And obviously I think it was Lavenda, the one that talked about the different Ascension technologies and all that. He writes about the dipper, but you're bringing it up here. It's all about poles and holes. And then you have HP Lovecraft or Grant here talking about that as well. And then, yeah, are you going to read, you want, you want to read that quote there? Right. Cause that, that resonates with me as well, because a lot of these books, I've been told before that they, right, as the kids would say, these books slap different when you read them out loud versus when you read them with your inner voice because there's something about vocalization and saying things out loud that has a different resonance. It'll, it'll, you can interpret it differently, and this, I think this is what he's talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. So he says, it cannot be read and analyzed like a standard book. It must be listened to like music. Listen with respect. For most assuredly, after you have heard it, your personal Kabbalah will be changed forever. Yep. So, very interesting. So, I'm going to open up with some generic, very quick, I think, sort of uh, quotes here. And he backs this stuff up. Go for it. Can I put something down on that last quote you just said? This this was my message to Chance yesterday. Some people don't find things... A muse sing. Some people don't find that a muse sing. Some people don't find that the muses are singing all the time. They're always singing all the time, and they're speaking between our words. I'm pretty sure that's what Kenneth is getting at. Gotcha, gotcha. So, uh, the mystic pole tradition is the keeper of the secret light. So he basically is saying that actual real occultism, old school information regarding ascension, spirituality, always goes back to the pole. He says that so many times in so many different ways. And I'm right there with him based on everything that I've come to understand over the last handful of years. So that's that's a quick one right here. The mystic pole tradition is the keeper of the secret light. Only by attaining polar wisdom, illuminated knowledge that is no longer intellectual in the way it is commonly understood, 
the fish can be freed from the net. And this is basically um, his metaphor of we are the fish and the net would be uh, the creatrix or the matrix. Lovecraft did not only incorporate genuine polar tradition, but his works also contain unmistakable concepts taught in medieval alchemy. So just some quick hitters here. The the thing about Lovecraft though is that right he always talked about how he was never he never liked the occult or he was never an occultist. But then you have all these other writers talking about maybe perhaps he was one of the greatest occultists of all time or alchemists he, as he's talking about here. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. It's very interesting. So he says here that Lovecraft described himself as the keeper of the North Point, which is very very interesting. And so yeah, there's so many examples here. It's fascinating stuff but he even goes on to say that edgar Allan poe and jules verne that their work basically uh hinged on polar symbolism and so that's what he gets into right here so he's making the case that there's a lot of older authors artists occultists their whole thing was all polar in nature so and poe's the fall of the okay either way uh, and Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher is indeed the ashen place. His dramatic descent into the maelstrom set up high in the north is all too obvious. Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea contains principal polar symbolism. It's Captain Nemo. Then we have Nemo. Crowley talked about Nemo. So before we get into Lovecraft-specific stuff, I wanted to hit upon some of the cultures he says essentially basically uh that their tradition is polar in nature so right here he just says plainly the esoteric nucleus of celtic tradition is polar esoteric islam is basically polar he says here the area of the himalayas the trans himalayas and the gobi desert can be regarded as one of the oldest historically traceable areas of manifestation of polar wisdom this is interesting, I thought. The medieval Cathars of Monsegur, and I don't know much about this, persecuted by the Church of Rome for their polar tradition. So he goes through different examples in history of groups that had a polar philosophy who were persecuted or uh, what have you over the ages because they were essentially at odds with the solar tradition. Well, and he talks were, about that quite a bit. They were Gnostics, too. The, the Cathars were 100% Gnostic, so... I mean that they were persecuted by the by the church, but yeah, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, and the church you know, is uh, highly solar. Yes, well, when I see Mont Segur, it's a uh, it's a mountain of blood, uh, or or mountain of the family sanguinity. Moon juice, um, baby. Yeah, but mm -hmm. and then uh, I'm pretty sure in the Cathars, there's um takes place in Languedoc is the name of the historical, some of the events, and that is code language. Langua, D-O-C, C-O-D, Langua, code language. So mm. the name of the place where it happened is telling you there's code language all up in that story. I uh, just thought I'd drop that while we're on. Excellent. So here he says, even the solar deities of Mesopotamia were often depicted by means of polar symbolism. So when a lot of people, obviously, old world Florida, old world this, old world that, I think one of the things that really needs to be taken into account is that some of this old world stuff is steeped in the polar tradition. 
basically that they had a completely different worldview and it's a paradigm shift from what most people understand today because we're taught a solar tradition essentially with the solar system and the emphasis of the sun and all these other things it comes with a whole sort of philosophy basically and then uh, the f's and s's used to switch in font and f's and p's are phonetically interchangeable so there is it is a it's kind of a double skip if you're, if you're skipping stones you're doing a double skip philology kung fu but there is a, a link from the s to the p to the uh to the f right right so uh here he says that the aztec word for fishes is atl atl and then in the next slide he says that he connects that with atlantis so Atlantis is the land of the fishes, which is really interesting because Longo's whole thing is that he connects it with Pisces, the fish, right? Atlantis is the land of the fishes and therefore anciently linked with the mystic pole tradition. So he thinks, like myself, that a lot of our symbolic framework comes from the pole, basically. It comes from the world axis and everything that um, you know is associated with it, the North Star or some major minor, all of these different older myths. You know, I'm... Um, I'll, I got to say that um, for in my territories, it is the moon card that is over in um, Pisces, and it represents Hawaii. But in the Thoth deck moon card, there is a compass hiding in the uh, subtly in the artwork. And if you look oh, yeah. between, yeah, if you look in between the towers, there's these two blue. I mean, it just looks like a Masonic compass. And sure enough, you cut and paste the compass in there and it fits perfectly. But a compass po always points to the north. It's a, it's a writer's crop compass, but it also implies that, uh, you know, that true center, that polar correspondence. Interesting. Interesting. Nice. Right. Um, so this is more Lovecraft specific stuff. That was kind of laying a foundation a little bit or just giving you an understanding of where he's coming from. But. Lovecraft was an alchemist and occultist. As we have seen so far in the cases of Shubnigaroth, Kadath, and Cthulhu, he was a gifted phonetic Kabbalist speaking the green language of the birds. And as well, we shall see in the following chapters in the context of Yog, Sothoth, Nyarlathotep, and Azathoth, he practiced the art of encoding to a masterly degree. So he spends quite a bit of time breaking down you know, uh, some of the names of these ancient ones and how they relate to the polar tradition. That's one of the big things in this whole entire book. And, and, and I, I forgot who it was that I heard talking about it, but I think it might've been anyways, it doesn't matter. But the idea that they related Lovecraft with him tapping into these archetypes, right. On the topic of, uh, right. I've been listening to a lot of young as well where he talks about it's all just symbols that are being they're being put out exoterically and that's what people are are observing right and then we talk about the church and how they were very solar and they would they would put down and, and obliterate the polar people well mm -hmm. you know it's a weird thing and then i've heard this before where lovecraft again he didn't take any claim at being an occultist or alchemist but yet these other people were like, no, this dude was a mastermind. This dude was was way beyond his years, and he was super smart just encoding all this stuff. But what if he was just a dude writing horror and, and cosmicism and, and 
And these ideas were just again, he was just a let's say that he let's put out let's put aside all the occultic stuff. Let's what if he was just a good writer? And he found his niche and the dark horror stuff. And it wasn't well, you know? Yeah, no, dude, exactly. If you're a good musician, filmmaker, artist of any kind, you're you're tapping into something, you know, and it's gonna resonate with people for a very good reason. So, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying with that for sure. It, it's it's there's going to be something there that something of substance, I think, for people. Um, right there, right there. Uh, yeah, because he was so prolific, seventy thousand correspondences in his lifetime. He was clearly, yeah, he was clearly driven by some very fa- uh, fascinating force. I want to point out H.P. Low, H.P. Low, is uh, Apollo. And Apollo is a deity of stories, storytelling. Ooh. He actually appropriated the Dionysians and uh, in, well, put their stories into his musical uh, tempo, into a different time pattern. So he's got the master storyteller, Apollos, in his name. And then the craft in German is actually a vessel or a ship or a craft. Uh, so he loves, you know... Mm-hmm. I see it as vessel as in placenta. I mean, everything uh-huh. is placenta for me. So he's, yeah, he's down with the homunculus hey. uh, crack. <laughs> so, go go ahead, Mario, because I got something to weave into that if, if we're going to get into etymology a little bit. Right on. Yeah, so Lovecraft's Nasht can be equated to Naasht, an Arabic word used to designate the constellation of the Great Bear, otherwise called the Great Coffin. And this is the first time I've heard Ursa Major, the Great Bear, the Big Dipper, be referred to as a coffin, which is absolutely fascinating because there are a lot of, especially when you're looking into Kenneth Grant stuff, um, the northern sky is equated with the underworld. Mm-hmm. And so the Egyptians, uh, the northern sky was the opening to the Duat, which was their underworld, which is symbolized uh, by the five-pointed star. So there is as much sort of uh, paradise, you know, heavenly symbolism associated with the North as much as there is stuff related to the afterlife and the underworld and things like that. And Mario, it, I want to get your opinion on something because, okay, we're, we're talking about, all right, we know that the, that the North stars and the, Ursa, Major, Minor. We know that the Space Force uses it in all, in all their logos. Okay, so let's say that it is this place, right? In the Book of Enoch, right? Chapter, I think, 33, verse 33 or something or other. It talks about going to the north, right? And how it's a gateway or something or other. You have Young talking about the hidden God. I think it was a hidden God at, at the north or something like that. You have Santa Claus with the North Pole. You have all these different things. Now, what do you, and you can talk about in the metaphysical or the actual physical, do you think that there's something there that they're tapping into and referring to? Like if you were to actually go to this place, right? Like Jacob's ladder, which talking about stones, right? He put his head on a stone and then had that dream. Again, we're linking the Lovecraft dream, him being an alchemist. Well, was he sleeping on stones? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what's going on there? But what do you think they're alluding to when they when they're with all this talk of the North Pole? Now I know there's the physical interpretation of it and the metaphysical. But in your if you had to break it down really in like layman's terms, what would you say that they're referring to? Like an actual place you go to and you get out of this dimension, or like what's going on? Right. So the center 
of this place, a lot of people have said that the north, the northern part of, of Earth, is the sacred center of this whole entire place, right? Now, whether you're a flat earther or hollow earther or ball earther, you have to acknowledge the importance of the poles, right? There's something mystical about them. People have written about them. There's a lot of material out there regarding what's happening up there and down there. There's always something to be said about the uh, the, the openings, right, to the inner earth and things like that. The Nazis going to South America, the, the various treaties regarding the poles and everything else. So... Um, to me, what it seems like is that we live in a nested toroidal system, which is essentially a donut. And so the nested toroidal system has the same core, no matter how many toroids are nested together, right? And no matter how big and how small they are, you still have the same axis point in the middle. And at the north is the opening of our magnetosphere, right? And so this is what the Egyptians were referring to with the, uh, the horn of a great bull, and that you actually go in, uh, towards the horn and out this cusp, right? And so there is a magnetosphere around Earth, no matter what sort of um, framework you have when you think about the Earth. And so there is this actual opening. And so to me, the metaphor has been that the sacred center of Earth has been a uh, symbolic reference to our own sacred center because there's a relationship between our bodies and earth itself. So when I refer to, you know, Northern symbolism, polar symbolism, the sacred center, I am also referring to myself as well and my sacred center and my core, right? Know thyself and you'll know the universe. So a lot of this is very, very Eastern um, kind of in, in a, a philosophical sort of way, going within and the still point within or the zero point or whatever you might want to say. So to me, all of these ideas and all of these concepts are like totally related to each other. And we are also toroidal as well, especially our hearts. And he actually gets into the symbolism of the heart and the toroidal nature of the heart and uh, how it's related to, you know, the color green, our, our heart chakra and everything else. And he basically says that when your heart is open and you start kind of understanding uh, polar wisdom, you know, your, your heart basically comes online and that uh, a whole new world opens up to you. So he also makes the distinction or he actually makes the comparison of the sacred center of earth, uh, us being um, having terrain, having physical bodies and our hearts actually being related to this axis point and how uh, our hearts actually he I think he calls it something along the lines of like it's how we receive our spirit impulse, something like that. And so that's how I personally see it. There, there's, it, it's such a huge paradigm shift from what I kind of understood growing up that there's a million different ways you can talk about all this stuff. But hopefully, I kind of answered your question there. Yeah, and and, and no, and again, it that's going to be a culted it, behind. So if we're, if we're talking about a battle between all these religions, polar, solar. The the solar stuff is going to be androgenized or personified to to right rep, be represented by something else and you have to be able to read behind between the lines to really grasp these con you know you know what you get what i'm saying like it's going to be all occulted but it's still that, that and that's why i tell people about the occulted scaffolding and how important that is whenever you're uh, interacting with something or it could be anything and just because the final product isn't malicious doesn't you don't understand the intent that went in behind that and maybe that was perhaps malicious and all right, speaking of malicious, I want to bring up here the, I got this, it's called the, 
forgot the name of it, but it's, uh, I think, the Encyclopedia Cthuliana or something or other. And it's got all the references and the Cthulhu mythos. And Abdul all has read, right? We're talking about how this was his alter ego. Now, uh, it was very similar to the alter ego that Houdini had. Now, I want to focus here because he breaks down the name, right? Abdul Azred, the worshiper of the great devourer, Abd, worshiper, servant, Al, the Azrat, strangler, devourer. We have here Abdul Al-Uzza, servant of Al-Uzza, pre-Muslim goddess, Stanley, Abdallah, Zar, Adin, I'm butchering these, but he breaks it down here. And then right here, Al has read a name which has only kept its meaning of, quote, one who sees what shouldn't be seen in Yemenite. And then it's weird because the origin story of this guy was, Al has read who was in this account unnamed, was a young shepherd who narrowly escaped death when he witnessed a cult of the, of the old ones. Having seen their power, he forsook his former life. So again, right, the one who has seen... What shouldn't be seen, right? He he saw something of the esoteric, right? That was occulted. He saw, he witnessed it, an, un, an uninitiate, right? So aside from the Necronomicon, only a few of Al Hazred's works have survived, including the short story, the Scrooge. And then he goes on to hear, Abdul Al Hazred was a plain name of Lovecraft's that either he or the Whipley family lawyer Albert Baker invented when HPL was very young. So again, he he, t and then also I've heard about the this being connected with his obsession of Arabian Nights, I think it was, and how he came forth, right, and, and the whole lore behind that story. But I just found it interesting this here, the the breakdown of what it could mean. This one stood out to me, one who sees what shouldn't be seen. Interesting. Nice. You um, know, I'm, I'm, I want to kind of weave the thing, those two uh, uh stories together like you know Mario you mentioned that you've never heard the bear referred to as the coffin here we have a story about a shepherd who goes into a dark place and see and who sees what should not be seen both of your stories are actually tracing over the stars from the the arc of the tail of the bear uh, Ursa Major and going right through the kite can you make me big Mario or uh, uh, Juan can you make me big I got my yeah, you're always Can big you in my in my books, like <laughs> swell me up, baby. All right, <laughs> this is the bear, right? Okay, and you see its tail. So this is a key for uh, nautical for mariners, you know, people who keep the uh, the trade routes flowing. So this arc of this tail right here is a grand archway, and I've even heard that like people in uh, like a uh, Java that they depend on the tail of the bear because it points at Arcturus right here, which is in, uh, we're in Virgo right now with uh, Bootes, this kite, this is called the kite, and this is the great void. So this is like the big absence, the great darkness. Uh, this constellation has been on my radar big time. Uh, and right next to it is this Corona Borealis, but in some traditions, this is the bear cave. Uh, this is considered a bear cave, and it's an archway. It's like a nice horseshoe shape. I think this is actually the origin of the Libra shape, because Libra is just right here. But the shape of the symbol we use for Libra looks so much more like the horseshoe of Corona Borealis, if you look at it. 
but we're in the same section. But I wanted to say that the bear's tail points right through the uh, the great horn of Arcturus, which it marks the lunar new year. And then look, it goes right into Ophiuchus, who is shaped like a coffin. Mm. And, Ophi- and Ophiuchus is, uh, takes up the whole chunk of uh, uh, Halloween when we're going into, uh, you know, celebrating the, the, thin, the thin veil. So we're communing with the uh, ancestors. And it also has a lot to do with the hangman card, I think. Uh, but also, I think, Houdini. Houdini was an escapeologist. Well, Ophiuchus is the uh, escape coach of the Zodiac. There you go, dude. I love it. There's a fucus um, symbolism that we can talk about later that I've been dying to get off my chest at some point because a fucus has basically been described as a uh, polar constellation. It's an exit outside of the solar zodiac, the ecliptic, towards the pole. And I already knew that before I read this book, but Kenneth Grant actually uh, clarifies it, and he essentially agrees. So, anyways, fascinating stuff. I've been studying that portion of the night sky, too, uh, as of late, just because it's so visible, you know. But uh, also, Juan, I just want to say, I have a quote later on, I think, that kind of uh, answers your question as well, in a way. And it seems as though people have really saw just a direct correspondence with actual, real ascension methods and northern symbolism, that they're completely fused together. So the idea of number seven, seven veils... You know, seven chakras, seven days of the week, seven colors of the rainbow, things like that. Seven processes to Azoth alchemy, et cetera, et cetera. Seven traditional planets. Um, They saw that their spiritual framework and the northern sky, that there was really kind of no difference. They, They saw them as being completely related. And I think the understanding was that since everything came from the north, so to say, from this sacred center which is the center of the cosmos, by the way, under their cosmology. So when I refer to the world tree, there's only one world tree. It's a universal tree as well. It's a cosmic tree. It's the same trunk. So under the polar tradition, way more geocentric, and the center of the cosmos is much, much, much closer than what we've been told, than what we actually think. And so that central gateway, that axis, the axle of the heavens is much closer than what people realize too versus under the solar tradition under the solar system model how far is the sun right mm-hmm. yet everything supposedly revolves around it mm-hmm. and so to me it's this complete inversion of like they've told you that the sacred center of the of the system that we live within is however many miles away you're never going to see it and never comes close to earth meanwhile under <laughs> something along those lines right Meanwhile, under the polar tradition, the sacred center of the cosmos, in kind of in some ways, under that model, it's like in our backyards, basically. Interesting. Right. So, you know, uh, Mario, I want I want to throw something in on the um, Ophiuchus's polar symbolism. I got a big. I think I just made a huge link that he's that really supports what Kenneth. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill is playing down and that is gallows humor i'm finding uh i'm studying the gauls 
and the Gauls are kind of became the French. They were the Greeks, the French, the Gauls. But there's and then there's also a, this thing about the Norse as well. But all of these things are pointing at Draco, circling circling the egg of the of Polaris, right? Yig Drasil, mm. the lizard egg, and Drake. Uh, Dracon was a tyrant who would put uh, the laws up where everybody could see it on a high pole. And the law said we would kill you even if you uh, take if you steal food. So it was like a draconian death penalty posted on a high pole. Um, mm. uh, but oh, Kenneth Grant. Okay, uh, gallows humor. Here's the thing. So Norse people say that Yggdrasil means Odin's horse, and that's cool too. But there's also uh, and there's he's hang, hanging from the tree, getting the runes. But there's also gallows humor. Is, uh, is like a signature move of the Gauls and the French. And so I just think that's really fascinating because Ophiuchus is shaped like a coffin. And so every time I see somebody's dying words becomes like a really hilarious joke. Only the inside click is going to get the joke within the joke, like Socrates' final, final words, you know? It becomes gallows humor. Um, so I just wanted to put all these signs together and point them at the north because I think it's all in one big fat package. Interesting, interesting. Right on. Well, uh, moving forward here, Cthulhu or Cthulhu is the fish of heaven awaiting his mystical ascent and the reinstallation of polar order. So another thing that people have to understand that I've basically realized over the years is that there is so much watery oceanic symbolism tied to the north. So even the seven stars of Ursa Major um, have been referred to as seven sailors. And uh, the great goddess that exists in the north, she has all sorts of aquatic symbolism associated with her. So I definitely see a fusion with uh, oceanic symbolism and everything that's going on up there and with the polar tradition. So, And he does as well, which I think is fascinating. Right. So the mention of cephalopoda, I'm, uh, cephalopods, I'm assuming, indicates the mystic pole tradition allegory of the process of human transformation and the entry into the hidden realm. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. So he makes a thing about cephalopods being tied to this tradition. And then also he gets into tentacle symbolism. The number eight, that's another thing that's really fascinating is that he basically says that the seventh chakra or the, the seven that I always go on about, the seven stars of Ursa Major Minor, that uh, that's the end of the threshold, but that's not the destination that the eighth chakra is the true destination. The eight um, after the seven is really where you want to be. That the seven steps, that's the ladder, but that's mm-hmm. not actually, you know, the point in which you're actually going to. And so it's the, uh, it's the means to get there, but the number eight plays a big, big role. And so he makes a thing in, um, with Islam and how they have a lot of eight-pointed stars. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but in the Islamic world, you'll see this all over the place. And so he thinks that's a direct sort of tie to uh, polar tradition as well. And it's it's interesting because, right, you have the, I, I believe it was the, the depiction that I showed earlier with the Chinese alchemists and the Taoists. And, and they were trying to align their, their chakra, their seven chakras with the seven stars. They were mm-hmm. trying to emulate that inwardly. In order to resonate with them and again go there or something. And I mean, here we have 
right? The process of human transformation and the entry into the hood. And that may, that perks my nipples hard because, you know, we're cooking with gas now. We're talking about hidden realms. We're talking about trans, transformation, you know, transmutation. Like, what are, what are we getting at? You know, because in alchemy, it's the same thing. When you achieve the magnum opus, the light, right? It goes back to the light, transforms you. And you then you step, right? you would be veiled because you'd step outside of space and time and start doing astral shenanigans in there i guess <laughs> indeed indeed um so here he says his works so he's talking about lovecraft he calls him a prophet i, I didn't highlight that part but uh he says his works of encoded revelation constitute the important manifestation of the mystic pole tradition in the 20th century while this planet is approaching a decisive uh turning point in its history in the original lore of the goddess and its many cultural ramifications throughout the ages, there is entombed the essential lore of the old ones, which is the polar tradition, and the wisdom of the white stone, which is also polar. This lore is originally extraterrestrial. So I thought that was really interesting as well. And to me, what I'm kind of picking up from all of the other things that he talks about in this book the old ones, right? The ancient ones. He even, he refers to Titans. All of these older gods, these giants, they are from the pole. They're all Hyperborean, essentially. That is their framework. That is their deal. And so to me, when I think of UFOs and ETs and stuff now, we did the whole tunnels of set business, right? Da'ath, the hidden Sephiroth, to go to the night side of Eden, to go to the great beyond, um, it, it's associated with the North. That that's the correspondence is that Da'ath and the North are kind of fused together in a, on a correspondence sort of level. So when we're talking about ETs, aliens, what's their relationship with the North? Are they using this uh, central gateway, right? Are they using the world axis? Uh, I'm inclined to think that they are, and I'm inclined to think that uh, people haven't made this correspondence because they are thinking from the uh, solar tradition perspective, that they must come from other planets, they must come from other star systems, things like that. But They're uh, created by the government, you know, stuff. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. I'm inclined to think that there's actually a northern polar thread going on with uh, UFOs and aliens and everything now. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it's almost, I feel like it's a, it's a trap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but only, but only to, you know, as far as you take it yourself, because um, the, you know, uh, to a large degree, this search for Atlantis, you know, uh, okay. So NATO, N-A-T-O is the North Atlantic Trade Organization. Well, in uh, France, they call it Wotan. They literally call NATO Wotan. Wotan is a storm god of war who uh, was prophesied to be on the march uh, by uh, Carl Jung. And they, and they took that, that name and they wear it very proudly. So it has the A. I'm, uh, the, the A in the word Wotan or NATO is Atlantean. And so the people in that organization are considered the Atlantean. And right now, P Putin is literally using the word those Atlanteans. 
So that word that's been resting and being dismissed by people and like the thing of children and, uh, for so long is actually becoming political, is being, being animated politically right now. And it's, uh, uh, so it becomes very dangerous territory to like, uh, when you're somebody who doesn't know what they're dealing with, they see on Netflix, they see that, oh, this person was really interested in the Atlantean history and Teutonic Knights. Oh, they must be evil. And sure enough, they find out that you're into Teutonic Knights and ancient obscure history. So these things really do become like a seeded minefield that are, that are uh, very inviting. It's very hard not, I'm drawn like a moth to a flame. But uh, at the same time, you're dodging stones uh, while you're learning these things because people are going to think you're some part of a white supremacist who wants to raise Cthulhu. Uh, <laughs> and it, this is another one, the Aryan domination. It, the alien invasion and the Aryan white supremacy, they have all the technology, and therefore we are the slave. It's all to the Gnostic worldview. It's dangerous stuff, man. It is exactly right, dude. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's what I was thinking of, this alien-Aryan thing. And I'm not the first one to point out the similarities between that. And I would actually love to ask you if um, you see – is there an LR switch, or do you see any relationship between Aryan and alien phonetically or it etymologically? Is, it, Yes, it's rule number one. The L to the R is rule number one. Like your left and your right hand, it's like this hand in hand with etymology is the L to R switch. It's the it's the most forgiving. Okay, gotcha. So alien, Aryan. You know what Aryan really, what it comes down to? A northern origin. That's what it comes down to, an Arctic origin. So the Aryans of the north or the Aryans in India, I've said this before, it's just... Super fascinating being in India, seeing these little taxis. They have a red swastika and they have a red decal that says Aryan. And it's some Indian guy, right? <laughs> so there are Arctic origin stories all over the world. And there are several groups that identify with this Aryan sort of label. And what does it mean? It has a polar tradition sort of relationship there. And then when you're dealing with white supremacy or Nazism or whatever, what's their main symbol? It's the swastika, right? It's Ursa Major yes. going around the pole star. World yes. War II was about the allies versus the axis, axis. as in <laughs> axis mundi, as in the world axis. Wasn't a There's cult lots war. of polar symbolism baked into all of this stuff. Absolutely. Totally. And if, if you do two X's, you're looking at an Aeon card, axes, dosekis. Um, yeah, man, there is so much to this. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the Aryan, uh, the Aryan invasions, uh, yeah, it's fascinating how it's just parallel enough, you know, it's like, I, I was talking about the mistress, but they misstress Twilight speak, you know, you, they're just almost telling you directly. Uh, but yeah, the L to the R is totally allowable, even in Korea. So we have here. You mentioned, I think it was on the last slide, extraterrestrial origins. Is that, is that the one? All right here. The lure is originally extraterrestrial. Now, Grant, funny enough, talks about how right, in Beyond the Mob Zone, page 48, the number 50 is significant, also in connection with the UFO enigma. The half-integer refraction suggests a vague, indefinite dimension between the two numbers, 51. Right? We have area 51. Now, 51 Ooh. is the number of Azazel a leader of the angels or aliens who, according to the book of Enoch, corrupted the human race by imparting to it via women 
the forbidden wisdom. The name Azazel also denotes the watchers who in medieval times were identified with last lascivious demons the knowledge which they imparted was the ophidian nature and it opened up the gateways to the other dimensions now it's very funny because we're talking about alchemy well one of the one of the first alchemists zosimos of panopolis was uh, attributed with the oldest alchemical writings was a fan of the book of enoch and he referred to the book of Enoch. and if we trace back the origins of alchemy which Again, it's from the fallen ones or the watchers and the watchers were what watching the divine alchemist at work, create reality, God, the divine alchemist or the divine architect, whatever you want to refer to him as, but right, the watchers. And then they took that and they passed it down to write the daughters of men. But if you think about what happens to Enoch, right, because we're talking about at the north, right? And in, in, in Enoch 33, he talks about something about at the north. Well, what happens to Enoch after he learns everything from these watchers? What happens to him? He becomes Metatron, right? He becomes this. He can coagulate and change reality. He becomes the little lesser Yahweh, right? Sitting at the throne. He becomes Yahweh's little homunculus, if you are. He's the lesser one. And it's funny because you got Grant here talking about angels as aliens. And then you guys are bringing in the Aryan and the aliens you know, holy shit, it was the Aryan, you know, like maybe it was, <laughs> who knows if, if there's a connection, right? There's, there was a mistranslation somewhere along throughout this. It was a, it was just a misunderstanding this whole time. And the guy just heard him wrong and he wrote it down and he was just like, you know what? It's something, right? So again, very interesting. And let me back up here real quick because we have also another interesting aspect that grant talks about page 22 right in order to explain what is meant by the terms old one so that's always been an interesting concept to me right because the way i've put it is is there something on the other side trying to manifest itself in our existence in our reality through literature right interdimensional literature inter literature uh, uh, travel, right? Because I think that books are, and I butchered that, but books are portals. They're gateways to other dimensions, right? We're talking about H.P. Lovecraft, which was very influential, very prolific, almost like if he was enthusiastic or possessed by a higher power writing these 70,000 letters, whatever it was, right? In order to explain what is meant by the terms old ones, outer ones, deep ones, etc., in connection with the Typhonian Gnosis, we have to strip down to fundamentals the actual constitution of man viz body senses mind and consciousness of these components consciousness is the substratum without consciousness the senses body and mind cannot function cannot even appear and this is where it gets really interesting it is it is the dread of relinquishing consciousness humanly edified that stands in the way of its full realization let us forget for the time being all magical nomenclature and consider fundamentals now this is where it gets really interesting because he starts talking about the sleep state and the deep sleep because you experience yourself there but were you there are we traveling when we go into these deep sleeps every time we wake up we think we're the same person are we the same people right what is happening because there is a he calls it a here, let me let me read it. So the only time we are aware of ourselves as human beings is during our so-called waking hours. 
When we dream, we do not always appear to function in human form. And when sleep becomes dreamless, we relinquish all bodily form, human or otherwise. Nonetheless, we continue to be, right? He, 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 talk, he capitalizes we, W-E, continue to be, capital B-E. We do not remember what occurs in deep sleep because in that state, mind is inoperative. We therefore say on awakening that nothing occurred, that there was a blank or a gap in consciousness. But again, we were there. If we were not, we should have no means of knowing that we slept or that we retained the self-same the self-same identity on waking. The human state, therefore, is but one of several states of consciousness that we periodically experience. Viewed in this way, it is easy to understand that a notion such as the abyss arises in the waking state from this apparent hiatus in consciousness, which we experience between waking, dreaming, and dreamless sleep. And and that's funny because, right, I sometimes have dreamless sleep too, or I don't remember, right? If, therefore, we investigate this void, we shall learn how to enter the abyss, which we know in our waking state as deep sleep. But it is soon it soon becomes apparent that we cannot undertake this investigation whilst in the waking state for the simple reason that when consciousness is identified with a body, human or otherwise, it is temporarily restricted by bodily law. So almost like we're in some sort of matrix simulation he goes here one cannot expect to fly in a motor car in order to fly one has to transfer to another kind of vehicle so again he's talking about again navigating this other right the uh, these these other realms he's right we talked about the universe b last time you and i mario and then he gets uh, even deeper into it but i want to point out one of these here that about the great old ones right here we have the self and innate powers, which after having assumed human or individualized consciousness, we see through the lens of the concept written mind. These powers we call the old ones, the outer ones, the deep ones, etc. They are called ancient and deep because they perceive they preceded the human life wave and they rarely appear in consciousness whilst it is functioning in the human state. And this is again, this is important because of H.P. Lovecraft. They are frequently sensed as hideous horrendous and unacceptable to the mind in its waking state because of the conscious mind's inability to conceive immense and formless energy in any but terrible configurations. So they are the, the, there are so right. You can't comprehend them. What is chaos magic organization beyond comprehension? So the reason that you see them in the wake, right? Cthulhu, it drives people insane is because you're in a different state of consciousness. You're, you weren't even supposed to interact with that thing. And it reminds me of when you have a psychedelic trip and sometimes you encounter things on the other side and they look at you weirdly like, what are you doing in this state of consciousness interacting with us here? You're not even supposed to be here, right? So again, just a very, very interesting. And, and again, I'm reading this in the middle of the night. And I'm just having my my wig blown back by Grant. And I'm trying to speed read to get it. But I can't. Because he has to, right? Grant will slow you down, rather he, he whether you want to or not. Because he'll throw something in there where you're just like, wait a minute. What? Right, let, let, let's go back. Let's go back and read that again. Let's highlight that because there's so much in there. And again, I don't know. What, what, do, you, <laughs> what do you guys think? <laughs> I, I, I gotta say, I was just thinking about 
tabula rasa this a couple days ago in how I think a lot of early psychology was built up on just the power of suggestion that they were just getting, you know, like the word jurisdiction means it means what I say it means. <laughs> you know, there's so many uh, just uh, science sounding terms of art that they just they sound sophisticated. Right. Or is it so fast? I hate it. <laughs> Do they just make up these terms of art? Um, but uh, tabula rasa in the blank slate theory, uh, uh, I think it's fascinating that that theory was in position uh, in a time when they were literally using uh, chalkboards, slate, to educate people. So while they're telling people about blank slate theory, there's literally a slate that can be erased as an example, like a visual cue, to make it that much more reinforceable for generations to come. And then when you get to our generation, you go to school and they literally have a chalkboard in every single class. Well, guess what? Sleep state, if you flip the front of the initial uh, consonants, it turns into a steep slate. And so the steep slate of your chalkboard is suggesting that you should stay within a sleep state <laughs> and be entranced with your entrainment systems. Very nice. And real quick, right? Shout out to What the Flock TV, Paul. The world's a stage also goes back to the world's gate or something like that. I forgot. The, the world is gates or something, which again, we're talking about yeah. passing over at the Silver Gate, I think is the one that uh, Lovecraft talks about, but passing over to the other side, right? And being able to achieve some sort of, of ascension, essentially. Right, right. And you mentioned the number 50 at some point. 51. Uh-oh. <laughs> Mentioned the number 50, and there goes Mario from Symbolic Study. They don't want us to know about the number 51, which Area 51, Azazel, right? Yikes. Hold on. He came back in. Let, yeah. me, pull, let me pull him up. There's... And that's a... Yo. <laughs> that's a 15 in reverse. 51. Going back to the 15. Oh, nice. Yes, I love Very it. Yeah, good. I talked about fifteen and it being related to Azazel. So uh, the number five being this threshold sort of number, Hierophant. and the symbol exactly right, the bridge, right, the bridge builder, um, and so the Necronomicon sigil is a five pointed star, and there's a second five pointed star encoded or baked, baked, uh, baked right into it, right? And so uh, the number five, <laughs> uh, the number five has this sort of uh, this power where literally it is the bridge between the physical and the metaphysical, between the material and the spiritual. That is always what it's meant. The fifth element is spirit or ether itself. Uh, we have obviously our relationship with the number five and all of that. And so um, I love a lot of the stuff that Grant has put out regarding the five and then even the mathematics of the five-pointed star, um, you know, it relates to phi and, right, the golden mean, the golden spiral, um, and all sorts of other pi, right, as well, right, mm -hmm. which is infinite. And so it relates to the circle as well, which has infinite points, which is more like spirit itself versus kind of the finite world here. So um, the five thing really trips me out, Um for a few different reasons, but it, it's super, super powerful. And for a long time, again, it's been this threshold sort of number. And when you're looking at a base 10 sort of system from one to 10, the five is right there in the middle. 
So it kind of represents the middle of some sort of arc or the middle of some sort of journey or whatever you might want to say. So um, the fact that you you brought up 50, I just had to mention all of that. Yeah, yeah. And again, I'm going to be dropping nuggets as we go along because, uh, you know, I'm seeing where to insert it. So and there's just yeah. so much to go. And when you mentioned the extraterrestrial, I had to bring that up because he goes, of course. he goes hard in that. Absolutely. I totally get it. Uh, right. So moving on, the return of the old ones is a mutual assimilation of orders so that the Titan gods can be in loving embrace with their Titan goddesses. That is called the embrace of old. It is solar and polar traditions reunited. So ultimately, he comes to a call to actually unite these traditions, the solar and the polar tradition. He, he doesn't go on and on about that. But I do think that's fascinating that he's not saying that we want to be one or the other, but we actually want to fuse the two. The alchemical marriage, right? The masculine That's and it. the feminine, yeah. Absolutely. 100%. Holes and holes, baby. Yep, you got it, dude. And he makes a big thing about the word Titan as well and says that whenever you see the word Titan, it's a reference to the old ones that follow the polar tradition. He says it's always a polar tradition reference, the word Titan. And he breaks it down etymologically why that's the case. And given some of the news recently regarding the Titan business, uh, I think that's kind of interesting. Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Let's go here. All right. Let's go. So here we go. Shub Niggeroth is the creatrix, the matrix of space-time, the element of transformation. Kadoth is the world mountain or Axis Mundi to be climbed. He makes a big thing about the Axis Mundi and the world mountain, that essentially all storylines are climbing the central mountain. All story arcs are climbing the, the central mountain, essentially. And Cthulhu is Cthulhu, the fish being caught in the ocean of night. He is one with the individual who is dreaming the dream of sensory existence and must be awakened from his exile. Ooh. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about how how H.P. Lovecraft was right allegedly encoding things in his names and, and the phonetic Kabbalah and all that stuff, right? Shub Niggeroth, well, he was also a, a huge racist, too. So I think that there's some some stuff bleeding into these names that are kind of scary to say sometimes. <laughs> I'm just, perhaps, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Okay. It's almost like you're being tested by fire. Yeah, exactly. It's like, if you're bold, if you're bold enough to just, just fucking say the word. Yeah, dude. yeah, exactly. So just, just putting that out there. So the offspring of the Shogoths, early humanoids were of gigantic stature. Their esoteric lore had in it the wisdom of origins. Its disappearance from the surface of the earth brought about the establishment of solar order, a man-made order, a departure from spiritual unity. So he makes it explicit several times that the solar tradition, the solar order, is a, is a man-made construct, essentially. It's not natural. It's a departure, as he says, from spiritual unity, which is yes. um, in line with the uh, polar tradition. Oh, wow. Um this hits super hard. Uh, Machiavelli essentially late made it a fact that using words is creating the world and that the world is different from earth. So the world is the fictional overlay of the glimmer of the grimoire of the grammar that we speak to create illusion in each other's mind. And that's world making. And, uh, so when we're world making, we're working in fiction. And that is, uh, that is per my read that HP Lovecraft's jam, because he always says that fear is the most powerful force. That is a lie. That's how, you know, you're dealing in fiction. Love is the most powerful force. 
So we are definitely in the fictional realm. I wanted to put that forward because it comports to what Machiavelli made a fact that when you use words, you're making worlds, you're a world creator. Um, and if you have historical context, that makes you not an animal. The more history you know, the less like an animal you are, which is why Animal Barn, the barnyard message is disappeared every five days. Okay, I'm going to stop ranting. No, you're good, dude. Um, right, so, and really, as far as what I really, really wanted to get to, the next couple of slides cover the end of the line, but if you guys feel like we want to go on and, and look at more quotes, obviously, uh, we're more than welcome to do that. Which slide but, do you want to jump to? Oh, no, this one's fine. The next couple, I was thinking, um, at the very least, if we could get through the first 25, and then mm -hmm. there's 10 more additional ones if we felt like we wanted to pull at that thread. But there's a lot of other stuff to talk about, too. Yeah. So it's whatever you guys feel like doing. But the uh, the old ones were the old ones, and the old ones shall be. Not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned, and to us unseen. Yog Sothoth knows the gate. Yogsothoth is the gate. Yogsothoth is the key and the guardian of the gate. Past, present, future, all are one in Yogsothoth. He knows where the old ones broke through of old and where they shall break through again. And this breakthrough point, that's the main reason why I put this here, is the northern sky. And he makes a case, and I think it's going to come up here pretty soon, that Ophiuchus is um, one way to access the true Oof. exit. So Ophiuchus is the exit of the ecliptic of the solar zodiac towards the pole, towards the northern sky, which is the true exit. So it's almost like uh, Ophiuchus is the off-ramp to get to the final destination. And it's interesting that, right, it's Ophiuchus because the, in the tarot, in the Crowley, is a Crowley Thoth deck? That yep. deck he chooses an occulted Ophiuchus, right? With the with the port with the portal, right? Or the chalice or whatever. I think we broke it down one time, but the the it's it's the full metal alchemist essentially. And it's funny because Crowley was also into Taoism, which the Taoists were some of the pictures I showed at the beginning where they were worshiping the star. And then now you're talking about the uh, he literally puts it in his tarot deck. So what was he alluding to? And wasn't there weren't the like the white dots on the armor of Ophiuchus in the Crowley deck significant too. Do you have anything on that at all? You know, I've never broken that down because the, the, the numbering, I can't remember how many there are actually. So that's something that I've always been curious about. Slick, you may be, or were the one that brought forward uh, an Ophiuchus charioteer connection. Is that right? And we covered it. I don't, I don't know if that was my work personally. Yeah. That, no, that was up in our uh, charioteer episode that we did together where we were talking about, could mm -hmm. it be that, you know, Ophiuchus is, is the hidden character in that armor? Yeah. Uh, right. Yep. The serpent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I could totally see that when, uh, for a few different reasons, because Ophiuchus traditionally corresponds with Mercury and Mercury is all about travel, right? He's the messenger of the gods. So there, there's yeah. a mercurial connection with mm -hmm. all travel symbolism, basically, I would say, including right. Traveling on a chariot. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And then here he says, uh, the crossing of the threshold, the awakening of Saturn as a Titan takes place simultaneously with the leaving of the Zodiac through Yog Sothoth, which is basically, I, I believe, his correspondence to, uh, with Ephucus. The process of transformation begins after the ascent to the threshold or with the passage of the pole. 
And so this is something else that he talks about is um, he refers to this sort of spiritual leaning as the um, pilgrim of the pole and uh, going along your poleward way. And that this is what it's all about, that your actual your pilgrimage should be to the north and that a lot of other pilgrimages around the world, like the Kaaba stone, um, it's symbolic of a northern symbol it's 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 symbolic of the north so when you go and have your i believe it's called the hajj when you go to your pilgrimage and you visit the kaaba cube the tradition is to revolve around the kaaba stone around the kaaba cube seven times right and so that's very very interesting and in uh, Judaism, they have this ritual called the Teflon ritual where you're wrapping your arm with black leather. You put a black cube on your forehead and then you wrap your arm with black leather. The tradition is to wrap your arm seven times. And so there's a number of traditions that make use of a, a circumambulation sort of thing going around this central point seven times. And that yes. it's essentially it's all polar tradition stuff because it's the seven stars of Ursa Major revolving around the pole star. Big time. And it also, uh, Hades, the river Styx, encircles Hades seven times. And they even Ooh. say that when, yeah, when Krakatoa erupted in 1883 on Vulcanelia, on the holiday of the volcano, Krakatoa, uh, blew up and it, the smoke encircled the earth seven times Ooh. from that explosion. Which that's is basically, awesome, told, dude. which is, yeah, I think that's a mind, you know, trap that telling us that it was like Hades. We were encircled by the river sticks from there. Wow. I love that. Thank you for that, man. Um, also just want to throw out there. There is a belief that Saturn may have been the original pole star. And so that's very intriguing. Uh, some people have referred to Saturn as the original sun or the original pole star. And as I said, he, Kenneth Grant makes reference to the word Titan being significantly polar in nature. So, you know, I'm going to I want to kind of fill that in a little. Uh, I think you and I both share this, Mario. Like uh, I was introduced to Saturnian cosmology at a very young age. I, I read Anne Rice novels uh, at a young, young age. And I actually had the, you know, the uh, the primordial golden dawn, the purple skies of the golden age uh, seated in my mind. Very, uh, very young. And now I think of it as like a parallel cosmology that I don't necessarily you know, it's not like it's my main jam, but it's always there. It's like an old hobby. Uh, it's almost like a language that I don't use anymore. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, I'm totally on board with the uh, Saturn was once sat at the North Pole uh, in the throne of the North. Uh, and the possibility that Mars might have been uh, in between us uh, and Saturn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, electric universe. Exactly. Fascinating. Right, oh, yeah. right, right. 100%. Did you read this one already? Do you want to see this? I did. I read this one. Yeah. Oh, my bad. No, you're good. So the word Nyarlathotep is a conglomerate code and can be decoded thusly. As already explained, Lovecraft's Nyar is identical with Nia. This mystical Arabic expression designates devotional intention and destination orientation. The word orientation is related to the Orient. By the mystical Orient is always meant the pole so orientation indicates the crossing of the threshold and the undoing of the web to achieve the gift of the white stone so the main thing he's trying to say is that all orientation here and literally the orient including the eastern orient 
is a reference to your orientation to the north, to the North Pole, to our Arctic origins, which I think is very interesting. And obviously, what's the compass all about? It's finding your orientation. Where are you? Where are you going? How can you get there? Right. The North Star and uh, your compass and um, and all of that, you know, that's going to show you uh, your way, essentially. So the compass is really fascinating, man. I mean, it's just it's amazing that we have a tool that is basically all about some of the stuff. And it's a very practical tool, too, clearly. Um, right. So we were just talking about the Kaaba. And the Kaaba translated as House of the Mother, the black stone has to be circumambulated seven times by the pilgrim. The holy ceremony of circumambulation is in meaning one with the ascent of the sacred mountain. There are seven planetary energy patterns to be transcended before the actual sensification, uh, scenification. Uh, the return into the bowels of the earth can take place with the opening of the eighth chakra. Interesting. So what you were talking about, right? It's not the last one. There's one more after that. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So the symbolism of the black stone to be found in polar or polar oriented cultures has its analog in the black Madonna. This blew my mind, particularly prop popular in Europe. Her deep esoteric meaning, however, appears shrouded in mystery for most people. So he's saying that literally the Kaaba cube in Europe uh, was the Black Madonna, and it represented this black stone, this black central stone. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is actually 100% the case. One of the things I'll mention is the fact that the Black Madonna, she's the virgin. So she's Virgo. She's the queen of heaven, and she's also the queen of earth. I've done several videos about the relationship with Virgo and the fleur-de-lis. That's what I talked uh, to you guys about you know, a few weeks ago mm -hmm. on Old World Florida. And so the fleur-de-lis is the northern point on a compass. That's what they use. For the northern arrow, it is the fleur-de-lis. So there's a northern correspondence with the fleur-de-lis, with Virgo, the Black Madonna, et cetera, et cetera. So he's saying that it's also a representation of the Black Stone, the Lodestone, um, this magnetic stone, this central stone, Mount Maru. And uh, I'm inclined to think that it's, it's absolutely correct here. So when I read this, dude, it, it definitely blew me back. I think there's a lot to say about this and one. You, you can unpack this one for a while, actually. Yeah, this is this one is really mind blowing because, and and again, what what's what's really what I'm wondering about is why occult this? Why this is hidden in plain sight? Obviously, for those who are able to read between the lines, and it's like I'm interested to dig deeper, like as to obviously I know right. This is part of of the occult and the esoteric. It's all hidden. But why? Like, who, who even came up with this sort of thinking in the first place? You know what I mean? Like, this is <laughs> yeah, I know. This is bizarre, right? It's and, and it that's is. what keeps me coming back because I think about all these concepts and ideas and where they, why they are even concepts to begin with. And I think that's the most fascinating part about alchemy, especially where this was a point in time in history where they were putting all these weird codes and symbols and talking about the white stone and the black stone, the philosopher's stone and, and all these different things. And I go, if there's nothing to it, or I'd say that they were trolls and they and they were just trolling everybody. Why even begin? Why even, why even do it? Why is it even a thing? You know what I mean? Like that, that's what blows my mind. keeps me coming back. Cause it's like, there's something, something about it. That's, it's really interesting. Well, he, he talks about it, and I do have a few quotes um, that kind of speaks to it a little bit, um, but about solar orders completely ravaging, destroying polar orders. 
essentially. That it's the rise of the solar order that made all of this polar tradition stuff esoteric. And that's because funny it wasn't because esoteric all the time. It, it, it was it was exoteric. People had an understanding of this. And that's so bizarre because right the solar which is the sun that is is meant to illuminate is actually occulting and putting people in the darkness by right is, is there a connection to the black sun there perhaps yes yes Whoa. absolutely for sure 100 percent. i would say the way i understand it is the black sun is another metaphor for this sacred center northern business and that what I've come across is that the exoteric sun that we're all familiar with, that that's constantly moving, but the black sun is still and in the center of everything. Interesting. Yeah. this I thought this was really fascinating. I feel like I'm going to do follow-up research with this because it totally got my mind going. So he dedicates a section towards uh, several different tribes that were polar in nature. Here he says, Irem, or Iram in Arabic, was built by Shaddad, head of the tribe of Ad. This pre-Mohammedan tribe, Mohammedan tribe was considered heretical since they disobeyed solar orders. He was saying that this, um, this town um, was basically the head of this tribe and that this city was named, um, basically it translates to something along the lines of like the city of a thousand pillars. And so that was like their main symbol was pillar symbolism. And they were all about the polar tradition. And there were different groups around the world where that was just their understanding of the world. It was just how they saw everything. And again, they are suppressed by the solar tradition, by solar cults and everything else, by the heliocentrists, essentially. So that's what it is. That's kind of what it comes down to. To me, I see it as a, uh, a war that's been fought for a very long time between the heliocentrists and geocentrists. That's another way of looking at it. And I wonder if this can be I mean this is this is definitely seen in Star Wars, right? The the Sith and the Jedi, you have the 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 good and the and the dark, right? I think that that would be cuz essentially it goes back, I mean the idea of two opposing forces fighting one another goes back thousands of years. I Forever. Mean, that, that, that's, yeah. been, that's been it since the beginning. And now, right, the pole, the, the city of a thousand pillars, it just makes you think in, in Greece and all these different places where they would build, right, with the pillars, right? You have Hercules and the pillars and you have all this. So it just, it's, you really start to unpack things. But yeah, that's a very interesting connection there. Yeah, I agree. So this is where he gets into Titan. Uh, because of the interchangeability of S and T, CC, and he's talking about other stuff before this, so forgive me, can also be TT. The word Titan is derived from that ancient ideogram. Everything Titanic, therefore, always refers to the order of yore, the polar tradition, and essentially to the mystic pole tradition. So just given the Titanic, the idea behind Titans, what they are, and all of this stuff, he heavily relates it to all this business. So Arctos is the name of the star in the seven-star constellation of Ursa Major, but also in the language of the ancient Egyptians, we can find definite traces of the polar symbolic language. The arc stem, which he talks about uh, before this quote, is preserved in Arche, that is necropole, and also in the conceptually related arkets or world beyond. The root in the words Arctic 
or Antarctic is obvious. What? I've never heard of the Necro Pole, but that would be another appropriate name for this bridge between realms for the for the world axis, essentially. Bro, and the root and the words Arctic and Ant Antarctic is so right because that's the whole thing the ice wall right where in yeah. antarctica where you can't go because of all the treaties you can't do anything in antarctica right and how right at the mountains of madness which hp lovecraft talked about and right this 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 yes, under exactly. underground like alien penguin looking race type of thing right the thing well i think does that take place in the arctic or is that in the north pole I, the south pole South Pole, right? So the, again, the Antarctic, very, very bizarre. And then you have the whole Operation High Jump with Admiral Byrd, and he talked about the poles as well, right? He's like, we're gonna be coming in contact with craft that can travel. Again, I'm paraphrasing very quickly between the North and the South Pole. So he, and then he allegedly had the the diary of when he went into the ho- the Hollow Earth through the North Pole, right? Mm. The opening in the North and encountered yes. the the uh the inner people I forgot, I forgot what the name of it was the shambhala and what's the other one there's one more that they talk I think of like the vril the vrilia yeah but there's another there's shambhala there's what's the other name there's another name for the inner city agartha 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 yes That's the one. Yep, 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 yep yep yeah yeah you got interesting, it interesting bro very interesting so here he says there are seven planetary stages to be ascended to the threshold, and there are analogously ana- <laughs> Sorry, there are analogously and correspondingly seven chakras to be transcended. The process of transcendence is coupled with the mystic pole constellation, the respective energetic pattern on the interstellar plane. So he's talking about kind of what I've been saying for a little while, but the the, the planetary stages are no different than the seven chakras, which have mm-hmm. a direct correspondence with the mystic pole constellation, which is Ursa Major. So there, there's no difference between the, the traditional planets, our chakras, and then, um, you know, the Big Dipper. Okay, I would I would I would give a far out like if I was writing a sci-fi novel, I would use this paragraph to to expand this plot, and that is that. The North Pole star changes, it shifts. Like once upon a time, it was Thuban, the head of Draco. Uh, and before that, it was some other star. Uh, but it kind of pops around. Apparently, I think it was in Auriga, very close to Auriga at one point. So that would be the charioteer, like pulling the planet. You know, it's, it's, it's the, uh, the guide uh, leading us along. But if, here's the, here's the plot I'm, I'm flushing out from this paragraph. If you knew the last seven North Pole stars, you could retrofit a nautical map back to our origins where we came from. It would literally be like a map that uh, that maps the shifting of the of the ship, this mm. this citizen ship that we're on. And if you knew the last seven stars, you could rewind the sky, the heavens of the sky. To find out, uh, you know, where this vessel is being uh, steered. Mm. Mm. Very interesting, dude. Yeah, I like that thought. Um, I am completely on the fence right now regarding if polar shift happens or not. 
if if the pole star actually shifts just because there's i've met several people who do not have that opinion and so i'm i'm trying to um do as much research as i can to understand whether or not that's the case and apparently right. i was talking to longo a week or two ago and he thinks that precession happens the precession of the equinoxes does occur but that it does not affect the pole star that the pole star has always remained the same so i i don't really know i can't say nice nice yeah and you know you could even take the same thing I just said with like seven different planetary adjustments and you could turn that into internal work, you know, for yes. these initiatory processes. It would be like you would go through seven stages of initiation, each one of them corresponding with the planetary realignment of the course of the plot of uh, whatever this big compass we're living on mm. actually is. Right, this, this right, donut. right. Shout out to Donut. <laughs> All right, so there's only a few more slides left. Um, in ancient Egypt, the process of transformation was coupled with Osiris. Therefore, the mystic pole constellation was in those times given the name Tomb of Osiris. So, I, again, I've never heard of this uh, tomb business related to uh, these constellations, but it makes perfect sense. So here he says, the root word from which Ostar is derived is to be found in ancient Sanskrit, where we have uh, Ustra, i.e. double hump, as well as Utra, i.e. north, Hindu, Hindi Uttar. The mystical concept of two humps, two mounds, or two mountains refers originally to the polar mountain or the world axis. In Arabia, the camel is called the ship of the desert, between whose humps uh, the rider sits. As we shall see later, this polar mountain concept is the master key to the comprehension of the tradition and all alchemical practice centering around the aspects of human transformation. And further on, it leads directly to the secret gateway in the bowels of Earth. So that's Oof. one thing that he mentioned um, is this idea that Twin Peaks are a polar reference. And uh, I actually just saw Donut, you just mentioned him, uh, he put out a video and he goes over several logos that incorporate twin peaks and mm -hmm. even the show twin peaks and everything else so there's a lot of twin peaks or there's double mountains that you'll see in the tarot as well and there's always or generally there's a pathway leading between the two and so i'm inclined to think that he's actually correct here that that the two mountains or two humps or whatever is a reference um to the uh, ultimate destination of the polar mountain and it and yeah, it Go ahead. It's also a two seven two seven Twin Peaks is a two seven again like Kenneth Ooh. Grant. Uh, and also, I want to put a pin in Bowels of the Earth for later. That is like a bullseye for something I. That's, uh, that's the whole. Maybe a, <laughs> yeah, man, that that hits a, a. I mean, it's just like a opens a portal in my mind. Thank you. And nice, nice. the you know the mountain again it's linked to Taoism with the Shugendo tribe where they were mount is a mountain worshiping religion, and they would attribute climbing these mountains and they would obtain magical powers from it. So yes. think about why Crowley was upset. He's a mountaineer and and also giving sacrifices along the way when the people were right. Uh, dying on the way up they're like hey we can't keep up and, and people were losing their lives so think about that and they they would become shapeshifters or, or whatever powers that they would uh, attribute and then if you think about you know twin peaks and all these different things uh, all these different symbols and all that i mean i i believe that's what it's linked to and also right our boy james cameron back to link the titanic in it when you go 
into the bowels of the earth to the bottom. I mean, invert that. What what kind of powers does that give you, right? When you go into the into the dark side, the the abyss, if you will, which is literally what they one of his movies called the abyss, isn't it? <laughs> right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. One hundred percent, dude. Uh, the other thing I'll say too that I have a real like just kind of profound new appreciation of is the idea that the camel as he said is like the boat of the desert or something along those lines Mm -hmm. it's all related to the ark and that the camel is symbolically related to crossing the abyss so crossing the desert in western occultism is related to crossing the abyss which is crossing the threshold to the other side to universe b the desert's the devil's mansion isn't that the same wow nice yes Go ahead. Well, I, I just want to point out that the, the Camelopardidus is pointing at the North Star. It's just barely yes. off of a like a needle. Okay, so if for uh, one to get into the gates of heaven, it would be easier to push a needle, a camel through the eye of a needle. Well, the eye, the needle of the compass points at the eye of Yggdrasil. It points <laughs> at the North Star, just like the Camelopardidus constellation points at it. Here, I got a. You, you can make it, me big. Yeah. So it's easier for a camel to go through the needle. Well, that's. Let's see if I can. There it is. And it's lib. Camelopardidus actually means giraffe. Surprise. Giraffe, camela, camel. They're actually the same animal. Now, I've heard from Lon Milo Duquette, give thanks and praise, <laughs> that when once you've crossed the abyss, you can. Then opposites uh, are consummated. What you thought was the opposite is not so much uh, they actually are attracted. Um, so a camel is a strange animal. It's like a strange composite animal. A giraffe is a strange hybrid animal. It's like a, a, an amalgam or, a, yeah, it's a hybrid. It's a mix. And so having crossed the abyss, you're able to blend these opposing essences. Uh, it's something that I, I think that that is pointing at. And also I want to mention that Zorathustra, his name actually means the golden camel in certain, uh, in certain parts of the world. And so it's just fascinating that that name becomes like a password that unpacks like camels do. Camels are packed with goods and services and mail. You got mail. Uh, yeah. And it, and it made it this far. Zorathustra is how many billions of years old? Well, that's endurance. It's endured like a camel should. Thus spoke Zarathustra, right? Dude, you got it, man. Slick. Um, <laughs> the whole thing, too, about all of this is that camel in Hebrew has a correspondence with gimel, which relates to the high priestess, which is the number two, which is a gateway, right? And so that right. is crossing the ab- abyss. That's crossing the threshold. And when you look at it Kabbalistically, uh, I believe where the high, uh, high priestess is on the Kabbalistic tree of life um kabbalists refer to that point as crossing the threshold crossing the abyss essentially with that camel so it it all is completely related also just what you're getting that but i'm just going to say it plainly but uh that needle the eye of the needle the needle is the world axis and the eye is polaris pole iris the eye in the sky right Oof! i want to point this out fascinating oh go ahead go ahead that right uh, on the topic of the camel well the camels are real there was a documentary that came out i think it's called the king of clones or something like that on netflix where it's about this dude that clones camels and this was uh, march 1st 2023 but the white camel cloning is big business in dubai 
and they talk about cloning uh they have like this whole thing of cloning i think it was race camels i could be completely wrong but i haven't watched the the actual the actual documentary but it's on netflix let me pull it up here in netflix it's called the king of clones and it's about cloning camels so you know you're talking about it being yeah. some sort of chimera type thing and then they've they're further polluting it by right very very homunc-esque this very controversial scientist check this out south korean scientist (laughs) sometimes it's amazing how uh how biblical scientists can be you know king Mm. of clones they're literally referencing back to the jesus nativity scene and talking about camels where there's three camels at the nativity scene you know it is oh that's a, you know what? That is totally pointing at the homunculus. I want to put another pin in this one <laughs> for later. Look at because this. Je- the Jesus homunculus idea is getting more and more traction every day. June 23rd, 2023, claiming to clone human embryos. Hmm. Yikes. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> first, what is it? First they laugh, then they, I mean, uh, this is again, this is, screams homunculus, but. People are starting to realize it on uh, by themselves that it's right. Go, it's homunculi all the way down, baby. Nice, nice. I believe it. I have to say that though when I'm here. Um, anyway, I got a lot out of this one, and uh, it is fourteen is the number of the two seven star constellations revolving around the interstellar axis, right? The wor- the world axis, the axis mundi. And so Ursa Major, seven stars, Ursa Minor, seven stars, set it a million times together. That's 14 stars, right? Well, when you look at the dippers, which I've been studying a lot lately, like actually like, you know, having my eyes, like looking all over the place, kind of reorienting myself with the constellations, seeing what's going on there, looking into specific stars, blah, blah, blah. And... Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, the way they are positioned, it looks like two dippers continually pouring water from one to the other. So it's two vessels continually pouring water from one to the other. The 14th card in the Major Arcana is Temperance. And what do you see? One chalice being poured to the other one. I mean, to me, I just like, and there's always twin mountains in the background too, with the path leading through it. So when I see those two cups now pouring from one to the other, I I think of the dippers. To me, it makes perfect sense. Two bears in a cup. You said (laughs) temperance, right? Yeah, temperance or art. There's always two chalices in the in the traditional artworks. Even we saw it earlier with your uh, the deck that you scanned. There it is, right there. Yep. Interesting. Ursa Major and Minor, the Big Dipper and Little Dipper, continually pouring into each other as they rotate around the pole star. Wow. That's really fascinating. In in a lot of, uh, like the Rider Waite deck, it has that, uh, it's an angel with an arrow, and the arrow points upward. It's, a lot of people think that that implies that the, the substance is floating backwards. It's flowing from the bottom cup up in reverse into the top cup oh interesting i don't think i've ever heard that before 
That's cool. Is he being birthed from the mouth or swallowed? I mean, it's <laughs> it goes back to that. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Yep. All right. So this is the last one I got. And I had to really narrow this down, dude. I have so many highlights in this book. It's completely nuts. But this goes back to a fucus right here. The hidden exit out of the web of the Zodiac lies astronomically between Scorpio and Sagittarius. He's referring to a fucus. This energetic area is the exit through which the pilgrim can leave sensory perception and space-time definition. Mm. Therefore, as Lovecraft wrote, Yog Sothoth knows where the old ones broke through and where they will break through again. Just as Saturn is the guardian of the threshold that gives way, Yog Sothoth is the key to undo the web of the Zodiac. And he's referencing uh, Ophiuchus. Oh man. Okay, I got it. I got it. <laughs> I got it. I got it. So this is November twenty second. Is the first of the five days, the five day degrees that Ophiuchus occupies. It's his heel. His heel is uh, November twenty second till basically the twenty seventh. It's like right over Thanksgiving. It's JFK Day, right? JFK was killed at the initiation of the Ophiuchus. Uh, the degrees that he occupies, he is representing the um, um, Orpheus mythology, where Orpheus gets his loved one from the underworld as long as he doesn't look back at her. And it's the last step. He's got his one knee lifted. He's about to make it, and he has to look back. My theory is because she spoke up, and her voice was not the voice of his loved one. She betrayed her own identity by speaking, and he was like, wait a second, that's not my sweetheart. And he had to look to check who was behind him. And then she ghosts away. Um, but that's another thing for another time. But that's the JFK event. Jackie is actually playing Orpheus, looking back at the loved one that has to, is being whisked away from her into the underworld. It's exactly cosmologically perfect that that happened on November 22nd. They were totally doing an Ophiuchus, Orpheus uh, ritual ceremony, but guess what else happened on November twenty second? This is this is huge, and it goes back to that paragraph you just read. It's so profound, guys. These guys are working on huge levels because I'm pretty sure it's John Pym from the fifteen sixteen hundreds, but he uh, was putting together a revolution against King Charles the first. This was a killing of the king ritual. Mm-hmm. And he executes the 19 remonstrances against King Charles on November 22nd. He launches, he launches an attack against King Charles that ends in the decapitation of King Charles I on uh, his attack begins on November 22nd. So he did a king killing ritual on the same day that they did JFK uh, centuries later. Uh, and it, it fits to that paragraph you just read so well about that opening a crack, uh, being like a weak chain in the link, psychically. Fascinating, dude. We, we got to get into a fucus at some point and really dive deep because I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of miscellaneous information, and I feel like there's just something here that's worth tugging at. Yogg-Sagoth is the key to undo the web of the Zodiac so bizarre man <laughs> now, that, that is that is kind of interesting because um uh because the child the the child god of the zodiac is aeon and he's not associated with opiuchus he's associated with january 6th uh the greek god aeon so that 
uh, I would just, they don't sync up perfectly. It's like, this is not the Aeon. Even though he's talking about a god of the Zodiac, Aeon would be associated with like Taurus or January 6th. So that's just, that's something I'm taking note of. And Mario, may I ask you how, so you printed this and you bound it with a spiral. Did you, did you do that yourself or did you have somebody do that for you? I just went to a print shop and they had no problem printing it for me. Okay. So if people are interested in the PDF, feel free. It, it's hard to get. You can get it on Scribed. If you just sign up, you can get a free account and you can download it. No problem. If people want to reach out, if they're interested, I'd be happy to send it their way. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to read it. Yeah, if, if, it wouldn't be too much trouble if you could send me a copy so I can yeah, check it out. Because it's very interesting. And yeah, I don't know if we should continue or, I mean, go, continue for another 10 minutes, do two and a half hours. And then again, there's so much to unpack and revisit this topic because it, it's very vast. I mean, it didn't even have a crap load of, of tabs open with with all the lure from from all these different stories and, and the characters that are in the tarot deck. So maybe perhaps we could do another follow-up episode to this topic because it, it goes deep. And I, like I said, Grant is just dropping bombs after bombs after bombs. But I, I don't know if there's... There, I don't know what if there is actually something to it or if they're just right reading into it too much you know what i mean like like because again that's the whole thing about chaos magic you can and grant is in there too right with with austin osman spar and these guys are assigning values to things for the time being you know what i mean so so when they're doing these rituals that they, they'll assign this value to these gods so right now here it's it's the great old ones or whatever these this little crafty and mythos but then what is it behind that? You know what I'm saying? Like there's like there's layers to this sort of sort of thing when it comes to chaos magic. And that's the more powerful aspect of it and the the dangerous aspect because you can literally assign a value to whatever, use it for your magical operation and just toss it right out the window after you're done with it. You know what I mean? And what what they're alluding to with Lovecraft and and this mythos is that it has so, like it has a lot of credibility that he's speaking about something true and then Mario, your research with the polar solar, I mean, it sort of rings true. So yeah. was he channeling? Was he doing it on purpose? Was he being contacted by something on the other side? Again, because every time that they asked him, I'm not an occultist. I don't, right. I don't. I think they asked him one time. I was like, do you believe in the occult? He goes, he's like, I don't really believe in it or something. Or other. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but something along those lines. And I don't know. I mean, if you were in a, if you were an alchemist, I mean, that, that'd be something, right? A reptilian would say he's not a reptilian. If you were to ask him if he was a reptilian. <laughs> so typical answer, like, yeah, I'm not into this sort of stuff. Right. Wink, wink, nod, right. nod. Here's my yeah. entire mythos that was channeled to me through my dream state. Right. And then my wife might've taught me like sex magic and stuff. Who knows? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, you know, like so many things, a lot of people, they have to use allegory instead of being overt and, mm -hmm. and clear and plain with their language, you know. And what I'm finding out personally, I have reason to believe we kind of touched on some of the semi-controversial stuff with, um, you know, Nazism and, and its potential relationship to the polar tradition stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that the polar tradition 
it's it's actually a dangerous topic i would say really and i would say that there's people who do not want to touch it for various reasons there's i've seen people online get completely bent out of shape because they want to believe everything is polar you you just happen to be open-minded you have your show you talk to all sorts of people or whatever but uh i've actually um and maybe we could talk about this off air but i know for a fact there are some channels that do not want to touch anything polar in nature at all because there are actually some very real kind of um, very controversial topics, basically, that kind of get baked into it. I think that the polar tradition has been suppressed. I think that there's a good reason why people have zero understanding of it. I think it makes a lot of sense that only in these circles, black, magical, occult, uh, chaos magician circles, are you even going to hear about it? You know, um, and so I think there's there's uh, a lot of evidence to suggest that its suppression is, is very real because we live in a heliocentric solar based reality. We live in the solar tradition. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of like the antithesis of like what we kind of learned growing up and everything else. It flips everything on its head, in my opinion. And it's actually more in line, in my opinion, with real spirituality. You know, um, the pole word way, all of the things that he's kind of talking about, it really clicked with me. You know, it, it resonated deeply. That's interesting. Wow, the pole word way. Here I am. Yeah, that's a great term. Here I am dropping dick jokes with the polar and solar poles and holes, and then you're telling me that there's some people <laughs> oh, yeah. who wouldn't even touch the subject. I mean, yeah, when we get off, you're going to have to tell me what you're talking about because that's very interesting. Sure, sure. But... <laughs> I like I like that term pole word way. It makes me think of um um for me it says I'm what it's what I do. I pull words away from what we thought they may, meant and then extract a whole other realms uh you know from that uh, the weirds of the words. Absolutely. And, and I and I think that that polar having a polar perspective becomes a cipher in itself. You're putting your head in the right place to see the twilight of the potentiality of the language that we speak. You know, I, uh, I still, I'm going to stand by it. I believe that the word ignorance is the egg in Urania's hands. And the egg in Urania's hands, it's not a globe, it's a star map. And I think that the ignorance of our language is the fact that we don't speak this, we don't speak this astronomy. You know, the fourth pillar of the quadrivium, the missing pillar. Uh, so yeah, so when they say misinformation, they're actually right because your information is missing the mark. If the <laughs> people you're talking to don't have the context, and so so much of the world is in ignorance. They don't see the the you know the star speak of our language. Uh, so that's that's my uh, closing words. And what better closing words? Because. Let's focus on that. Let's get together again. Let's use this as a part one. I think Mario really put together a, a nice slides and, and was really, we, we took out a lot from that. Then let's get together again. And I want to talk about the egg, the egg of manifestation. That's very important. These cards are all in eggs. The egg was important to Crowley. The egg is important in the Typhonian order of things, right? So Let's touch that Man. next time, right? You have Abraxas. That, we can go down a deep rabbit hole with that one and really pick it apart. Can I put apart. the tip in now? Can you, I please put the tip in now? <laughs> go ahead. Put the tip in. Slick. <laughs> Hide egg here. Hide egg in your ear. Heidegger. Mm -hmm. I have discovered Heidegger 
is the egg hiding in the swamp of the hermit card in the Thoth deck. And that red tongue is Schopenhauer. It's many people. It's the, it's the Diogenean pessimistic cynical legacy. And they are seeking out the Heidegger. And Heidegger is hiding out in the swamp of the hermit card. And that is probably one of the most dangerous philosophers. You know, I'm actually super self-conscious to even drop that name. It's weird. It's like, uh, you know how all racist jokes start, right? It goes just like this. Holy shit. <laughs> come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. That's how all racist jokes start out, looking over your shoulder. Yeah, no. And you start all... getting into these creepy philosophers, and you start looking over your shoulder. All, all racist jokes start off with not to be racist or anything, and then they just drop some some of the racist shit you've ever heard. But and then right to to link it to alchemy, right? I mean, this is a picture screenshot. Lab grown eggs. This is July sixteenth. A San Francisco startup aims to make lab grown human eggs. So uh, we'll focus on the egg stuff on the next get together. And Crowley, Lamb, Grant, and I'll finish the. You need to check it out, bro. I I I was literally on page five. And I texted Mario, I was like, bro, I'm only on page five, and Grant is dropping the hammer of the gods uh, on page five. And it gets, bro, it gets juicier after that. I'm only on chapter three or four, something like that. Uh, but yeah, it gets really juicy. We'll get into it. And yeah, you guys, you want to plug anything else? Any uh, closing thoughts, Mario? You want to add anything before we get out of here? I had uh, a great time reading this book. I got so much out of it. It's probably one of the more pivotal books I've read in my sort of polar trajectory. So I just encourage people if they like this information and um, they like sort of that angle that I present with it, they should absolutely give it a go. Absolutely. Symbolicstudies.com. Slick Dissident on YouTube. TJOJP.com. Hopefully everyone enjoyed this. This is again, we're developing ideas, thoughts on air as we go. We do a little bit of research before we jump on, see where the conversation takes us. This will be a part one, and then we'll go ahead and, and develop further and get into the egg, Crowley, lamb later on this next next time we get together here soon. So as always, everyone, catch you on the other side. Stay safe, love yourselves, love your family and stuff, and don't be a piece of shit. So
same song scenario, alter ego, all up in the stereo, live in the rack, we in the back, fuck rap, legal and ass, ain't nothing changed, came to blow a hole in the game, smoothies, throwing them things, close range, legal and strange, we the same as we always been, murder one from the origin, and so we go again. Cause they all want a piece of the pie 